I want to start off by reading a quote from, it's been attributed to Netanyahu. I've seen people attribute it to Gordemayir, but we're going to go with Netanyahu. If the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there'd be no more Israel. So just let that sink in and enjoy the episode. Prepare to turn right. Hey guys, welcome to episode 13 of Prepare to Turn Right. Just before we start, a few quick disclaimers, and we're going to jump right in because this is a lot, a lot to cover here. Disclaimer number one, I'm in Yerushalayim right now. I'm in school here. I don't have any of my equipment, so I really apologize if the audio quality is not up to par. I'm just recording on my phone, and I know that, at least for me personally, when the audio quality is not good, it drives me insane, whether it's my podcast or someone else's podcast. So I do apologize if the standard isn't incredible, but obviously this is incredibly important and I wasn't going to let not having the equipment I wanted stop me from making this. So that's number one. Number two is that I'm really just going to try, obviously, to the best of my ability to not give any gory details, to not sensationalize anything, to not be too graphic or say anything that isn't absolutely necessary to say. But I just think because of the nature of this topic, I would say... No young listeners, um, everyone can use discretion for themselves, but if your concern is anything graphic or sensationalist or traumatizing, don't worry about that. We're really going to try to just keep it very, very respectful and very, you know, say what is necessary and not anything more in terms of descriptions of anything. Okay, so with that being said, we're just going to jump right in. First thing I want to do is obviously just give a basic summary of what happened, even though I'm sure... We're all fully aware. So on October 7th, a couple weeks ago, um, it was for us religious Jews, we were celebrating the holiday of Sukkot, the very end. It was Simchas Torah, which is we celebrate finished reading the Torah and begin again. Obviously, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. Um, And so we weren't on our phones. We had no access to the internet, no knowledge of anything. All we knew was October 7th, wake up, Gaza's firing thousands of rockets all over Israel, over the entire country, um, in Kibbutzim and Yeshivim in the south, throughout the country, central Israel, everywhere. So there were sirens, and just like putting a little bit of my personal ex- experience, I'm sure we all had very similar experiences, all of us who were in Yerushalayim, is we had no clue what was going on. All we heard were the sirens, right? So meanwhile, this was a distraction by Gaza, by um, meaning by Hamas, to, you know, kind of start this attack, right? So this was a distraction, and soon after they start firing these rockets, they literally just broke through the extremely high-tech security fence that celebrates Gaza and Israel. So they broke through, I've heard a few different numbers, the one that I saw, according to the IDF, I think, was in 29 different places, and this meant first a cyber breakthrough because this is a high-tech fence right so they had to you know hack they had to use cyber attacks so they did that and they also literally just bulldozed through the fence and 
at least 1,500 terrorists entered because that's how many then were killed in this country. No one's exactly sure really the extent of it, I think. And they basically literally all just walked in. So paragliders, that's the imagery that people keep referencing is these paragliders, which we're going to get into a little later. Um, motorcycles, literally just any transportation. They just walked into the country. And we're obviously going to discuss what went wrong, etc. But that is basically what happened. So Hamas walks in. They kill at least 1,400 Israelis, injure thousands more, and they took over 200 hostages. Right now, the most recent number I've seen is around 212. Obviously, four have been released, thank God. And there's definitely reasons for that, which we could discuss a little later. And they're not humanitarian or out of the goodness of the bloodthirsty 5th century Hamas. Um, it's not out of the goodness of their hearts, in case you maybe consider that for even a second. So that was the situation, right? That is basically what happened. Obviously, the largest terror attack in Israel's history, the largest really tragedy for the Jews since the Holocaust, and we can get into all these different nuances of why we say things like that, but that is basically what happened, right? So in order to fully understand this, and no, I'm not trying to be nuanced here because there is no nuance in slaughtering 1,400 Jews in cold blood, men, women, and children, torturing them, burning them alive, and other things that we're not, we don't need to get into. There's, I think everyone kind of has a basic understanding of what actually happened. So, okay, so in order, but in order to understand where Hamas came from, why is, what is the Gaza Strip, right? So I want to do two things. I want to give a brief history of Israel, Israel-Palestinian conflict, etc. And I want to give a brief history of Gaza and Hamas. And that can help us better understand why things like this happen and why people, I guess you could say, are taking the other side. Obviously, I don't think it's really, I can't really understand it myself. But understanding the history can help you understand what's so wrong about what they're saying and help you understand where Hamas came from how all these conflicts started in the first place. So the first thing we need to say is that Jews have been in Israel since the beginning of Jews. <laughs> since even before Jews was, since even before we were a nation, Jews have always been in Israel back to biblical times. Okay, so when we start history there, first of all, it totally upheaves any narrative that the other side makes claiming Jews are colonizers, claiming they stole the land from the Arabs. So people who say that, and you ask them, okay, where are you starting your history? Are you starting your history in 1948? Are you starting in 1947? Anywhere they choose to start it, you say, let's go back even further. Back to literally, since, since the earliest recorded history of the Jewish people and of figures in the, in the Torah, in the Bible that we have, Jews have been in Israel. So anyone claiming that Jews stole it, when we start talking about the history of Israel, when we start from the very beginning, that dispels that narrative. And that's kind of an interesting point to consider because if any of you follow kind of the very silly stuff that's been going around surrounding like Columbus Day, surrounding Native Americans, there's a very popular narrative, especially in America and really in the Western world, that we stole the land from the natives, right? So that when Christopher Columbus and when all these different explorers came, they stole the land from the Native Americans, right? Obviously, I don't think these were perfectly moral people, and I think a lot of the things these these explorers did 
was not moral and not proper. But if you're going to say we stole the land from them, you ha- if you go back even further, they stole the land from each other, right? So this notion and kind of you can see parallels here, right? Jews are white. We're our own race because we've been oppressed on the basis of Jewish blood and being a race. Arabs are not white. Similar concept. These explorers, white, privileged, I mean, I'm quoting the way that these leftists would say it, white, privileged Europeans, whatever, kicking out brown people, kicking out Native Americans. So when, obviously I'm not here, I'm not, I don't care to defend Christopher Columbus. I don't care to defend all these explorers. I frankly don't really care what people think about them as people, but it's overall narrative here that I'm trying to draw a parallel between because people are very familiar with the Christopher Columbus narrative that we are living on stolen land. We hear this phrase all the time. We're on stolen land. And, but it's like, okay, yes. But also, they were on stolen land too because they stole it from tribes before them. Anyone who says that native tribes didn't fight with each other and kill each other and sacrifice children to their pagan gods and were cannibals and terrible people as well is just totally misreading and, and probably purposefully misreading history, right? So when we say that we Jews, quote-unquote, stole the land. It's not true because when you go back to the beginning of time, you see we were always there. Just like when you go back to the beginning of Native American history, you see that really where people choose to start history is not where they should be starting history because those Native Americans were always stealing it from each other. So if, if we say America's on stolen land, who are we giving it back to? Go back to the very first Native tribe that had it or the tribe that stole it from them. So obviously it's not the same because the Jews didn't steal the land. The Jews have always been in the land. But I'm trying to draw this parallel that we need to be start history at the beginning, right? Starting history at the beginning is crucial. Jews have always lived in Israel. It has always been a Jewish state, okay? Whether just it was just in the theory of it and in its inherent spirituality and in it, that it, its inherent definition. Even if it wasn't government recognized, and now obviously it is legally a, you know, state run by Jewish people and inhabited by majority Jews, etc. Okay, so Jews always lived in Israel. That's number one. Over time, going past biblical times, it's been under the rule of a lot of different empires, right? The name Palestine came from one of those empires, the Roman Empire. Roman Emperor Hadrian was the one who changed the name from Judea to Palestine. According to most historians, he did that to erase the Jewish presence from the land to kind of shame us because Palestine is like Philistine, like the Plushtim, right? He was kind of doing it to like kind of embarrass the Jews kind of. But we see Israel has been under multiple different empires, right? Ottoman Empire been under all these different empires and all these different groups who have conquered it, right? So then Jews slowly, as the, the centuries went on and as the decades leading up to World War II went on, more Jews started to move to Israel. There was a lot more violence toward Jews in Europe, pogroms, etc. A lot of Jewish communities started popping up in Israel, but Jewish immigration in these decades was also very, very restricted because, again, these different rulers in leading up to Israel becoming a state, obviously it was the British, were very, very restrictive in terms of Jews who were allowed to, being allowed to immigrate to there, okay? So that's that. Um, then, 1947, the British, because Israel was under the British Empire, it was under our British mandate, they announced that they were going to end the mandate in Palestine, 
leave it. They were, they were exiting, taking their troops out. They were exiting, ending their authority. So now we need to figure out who this, whose land this is. So obviously we know it's, it's the Jews' land, but I mean, from you know, the standpoint of the world. So the UN makes a partition plan. Basically, they're making a plan to have two states. They want a Jewish state and an Arab state. So there's going to be two countries inside what is the land that is Israel, the land that the British had occupied. And one's going to be Jewish, one's going to be Arab. And guess which side rejected the plan? The Arab countries rejected the plan and the Palestinians rejected the plan. You know, I know why? Because they hate Israel. They, and obviously not every single Arab. Okay, I need to make that distinction here. And these Arab countries, these radical Islamists, they hate Jews. They hate Israel. They want the land for themselves. You probably heard the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. River to the sea means the entire country. They want the Jews dead, these radical Islamists. They want them out and they want the country for themselves because they hate Israel and they hate Jews. Okay, so that was what happened with that. They rejected it. So then fighting starts breaking out between these Palestinians who rejected the plan, didn't want there to be Israel as a separate country, they wanted it all to themselves, and these different Jewish armed groups that existed before Israel was a country, before Israel actually had an army because it wasn't a country. So probably heard like the Haganah, the Argun, you probably heard of these groups. All right, so fighting starts to break out. Finally, then on May 14th, 1948, Israel declared independence. They declared independence, said, we're our own country. They said, you're not recognizing us, we're declaring independence. Some more, and, and that doesn't mean it's peace, right? Just like, I feel like I'm referencing American history a lot, but I think that's a good reference point because, unfortunately, at least for me in school, I learned a lot more about American history than Israeli history, which I guess makes sense because that was where I live. But, um, so I use these reference points because I think they make things more accessible. So just like the U.S. declares independence July 4, 1776, then there's a Revolutionary War. Right? So, May 14, 1948, Israel declares independence. The next day, May 15th, Arab nations, other surrounding Arab countries, attack Israel, attack the Jews. So, fighting breaks out. That's Israel's, like, war of Atzimut, right? It's Muhammad Atzimut, it's, 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 revo- it's revolutionary war, it's, it's war for independence. Okay? So, I just need to make a caveat here. Not every single action carried out by these groups, like the Haganah, Irgun, etc., not every single action was justified. Not every single thing they did was perfect. Because this is war. These were not all people who were perfectly, perfectly in the right all the time. They made mistakes. They did things they shouldn't have. That does not justify unprompted attacks by these Arab countries and by these radical Palestinians on Israel, okay, because we hear all these claims all the time, which I'm going to get into about moral equivalency, that it's both sides equally doing wrong things. That is simply not the case, okay? So Israel is being attacked. Israel fights back, right? So during this, I need to acknowledge one thing because this is a point that gets brought up a lot. There were Palestinians who were kicked out of Israel during this time, but it is radically over-exaggerated. Okay, so there are a lot who left. So why did they leave? Some left because they were refugees and they ran from their homes, just like any people run from their home during a war because they fear for their lives or they fear for their 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 you know livelihoods or their their possessions, right? So a lot of them left. A lot of them left also because their Arab leaders advised them to leave. They said, just get out, right? Just go. And funnily funnily enough, 
um, a lot of these Arab nations did not take in so many refugees. They wouldn't even take in their own, you know, co-religionists, their own Muslim, their own like Muslim brothers, supposedly. But anyway, there were some who were kicked out by Israel. Yes, I think that does that small that fact doesn't justify anything that is ever done. All these unprompted attacks, and also you can kind of understand they're fighting a war against these people, and obviously not every single one is guilty, but a lot of countries kind of do this thing, you know, where you kind of have to err on the side of caution. Um, but anyways, a lot of Palestinians left on their own. A few were kicked out. A few were told, like, some were kicked out, some were told to leave by their leaders, etc. Okay, again, historically and currently, these Arab countries take in very, very few refugees, right? So, meanwhile, Jews are being kicked out of all these Arab countries at the same time because of all this conflict, they're being kicked out. Israel starts taking in all these Jewish refugees. So kind of you just see a contrast. These Arab countries won't take in their own people. Israel took in its own people. So again, you see this contrast. Okay, there was constant tension after Israel won that war, got its own country. There's constant tension. Things were not peaceful. There was always fighting. There was always, you know, these Palestinians, different terrorists attacking Israel during the next couple decades. 1967, of course, is the Six-Day War. So that was when Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq all prepared, mostly Egypt and Syria, but Jordan and Iraq also were involved. They're getting ready to attack Israel. Israel saw they were getting ready to attack and they launched a preemptive strike. Israel was incredibly successful, miraculously successful in this war. These massive nations with their armies defeated by a tiny country. And obviously, there was some religious aspect to that of, you know, this concept of this few in the hands, the mighty, many in the hands of the few. It's like a very common theme we're going to see in a lot of these different things and how these things work out. But anyways, so Israel get, actually wins land. Not, they don't lose land when they're attacked by all these different countries. They win land. So they got the Sinai Peninsula, which now... They give back. Now, that's not part of Israel, but they got the Sinai Peninsula. They got the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip also, and they got the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Okay, casualties in that war, Egypt, more than 11,000, Jordan, 6,000, Syria, 1,000, Israel, 700. Again, crazy, really just miracles that obviously 700 is a lot, but nothing compared to you see these other numbers. Now, 1967 to 1973, years between Six-Day War and Yom Kippur War, a lot of sporadic fighting, different conflict. Obviously, there was never peace between these Arab countries and, you know, the Palestinians and people in the Gaza Strip and West Bank, all these people. There was never just, like, peace, kumbaya. No. They were constantly attacking. Okay, 1973, Yom Kippur War. This was a surprise attack, which we're going to mention later because you're going to see a lot of parallels between the Yom Kippur War and um, the, the... terrorist attack that just happened October 7th and there's a reason I call it a terrorist attack and not not you know like not fighting not war obviously it's become a war now because Israel has to defend itself but they were not that those were not Palestinians waging a just war that was a massive massacre and terror attack so I'm just gonna put that out there but okay so that was Egypt and Syria who launched a surprise attack on Israel and their goal was to win back territory they lost in the Six-Day War. They were embarrassed, especially as Egypt's president, 
kind of wanted to, you know, restore the pride of his country and win back the land that Israel won when they were attacked in 1967 and then defended themselves and actually ended up winning land. And so it ended up starting out really well for Egypt and Syria and then ended up kind of going very badly. And Israel really was able to turn things around. So the final casualties, Israel lost 2,688, Egypt lost 7,700, Syria lost 3,500. So again, we see how literally they launched an attack and they still lost more people and they still lost. I mean, they totally started well and then they totally blew it. And there's a lot of reasons we can discuss as to why that is, but it's not so relevant. Okay, then there were two wars we had with Lebanon, where Lebanon attacked us and wars ensued. That was in 1982 and 2006, okay? And then 2006 to the present, again, different conflicts, etc. We've had a bunch of different smaller wars and smaller conflicts. Obviously, again, there's a lot of history here that I don't really feel the need to go into. Okay, in summary, what we can see here, Israel is constantly attacked. They, no matter how many concessions they make, how, many, how much land they're willing to give up, how, how peaceful they are with the Arabs. It does not matter because the Arabs, these... Palestine, these radical Islamists, these, the Arabs, and again, not every single Arab, but the general leaders of these societies and the general, you know, people, like lar- large amounts of people, they, it will never be good enough for their Arab leaders. doesn't matter how many concessions Israel makes, how much it is willing to give up. They are never going to be satisfied because they hate Israel, they hate the Jewish state, they hate Jews, and they want the whole thing for themselves, okay? So, you see, it doesn't matter how much, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter that the UN may offer them to have their own country and to have a Jewish country, there'd be a Jewish and an Arab, didn't matter, of course, because they needed all of it. They are never satisfied. Israel has tried to make peace time and time again in multiple different occasions, and sometimes it has worked. Some of these peace treaties have, you know, have actually kept peace. But so often, time and time again, they try and they try and they try to keep things peaceful and they try to just, they literally, Israel just wants to exist, okay? And they are not allowed to exist because they are constantly attacked and no matter how much they they concede and how much they try to give up and just live in peace it is not going to work because the palestinians because these radical groups will not let it happen they will not let israel just exist okay so then when israel defends itself and everyone gets all upset it's like they're not allowed to exist peacefully because they are constantly attacked so you think they're just supposed to just sit there and take it as they're attacked okay so that is basically the general theme in the general really overarching, I guess, paradigm of the existence of this country. Israel is constantly attacked. It doesn't matter what they do. They will always be constantly attacked, and nothing will ever be good enough for the Arab leaders. Okay, so now we want to get a little bit more specific and talk about Gaza and Hamas. Okay, so remember, we just discussed this. Israel declared independence. When this happened, Palestinians called this Nakba, the Nakba, I think that's how you pronounce it, which means the catastrophe, which basically they viewed it as dispossession, as them being kicked out of their land, and they viewed it as their dream of having their own state totally destroyed, which obviously we just discussed. They had the option to have two separate countries, and they said no because they wanted the whole thing themselves. 
Okay. Um, one of the places when Palestinians were fleeing from the war or, you know, leaving, all these different reasons, some of whom were kicked out, one of the places they ended up, so before the war, a lot of them left, during the war, after the war, was Gaza, was the Gaza Strip. And actually, Egypt was in control of Gaza until 1967, because again, we discussed Egypt was one of those countries involved in War of Independence. Egypt has, until really after the Yom Kippur War, there's been conflict with Egypt. Um, and Egypt held Gaza until 1967, until they lost it in the Six-Day War. So during that period, a lot of, you know, there were terrorists in Gaza who were attacking Israel time and time again. And then obviously in 1967, after the Six-Day War, Israel won that territory back from Egypt. And when Israel took control, they were pretty nice. They let a lot of Palestinians work in Israel. The Israeli army had a presence because if there is a country full of multi multiple terrorists who you know want to kill your people... You were going, and you won that land rightfully. You were going to put your troops in the, in the country, in that strip of land. Anyone who didn't do that would be foolish. Okay. Then, so again, there's conflict after conflict after conflict. 1987. That's the first intifada. So it started because there was an Israeli truck driver who killed four Palestinians in a car crash. Totally just one tiny incident. Right. So they have an intifada they start basically just attacking israel and this was the when hamas was formed the muslim brotherhood which is kind of this like po like political religious group right um i guess like re re religio political would be the correct term but they're really just a terrorist organization they basically just fund and you know create terrorist organizations all over the arab world um so the muslim brotherhood formed hamas muslim brotherhood started in egypt in like the early 1900s so they formed Hamas as their kind of armed branch in Egypt. So Muslim Brotherhood is basically just their ideas. They want to, you know, promote Arab, Arab, you know, governments and promote um, these, you know, like they want, they want Islam to kind of be like the political, like a political, you know, there's a political aspect to it. They want, you know, their interests promoted through government and they are terrorists. So they... Put, they instate terrorist organizations and they help form terrorist organizations in these different places to achieve that goal. So they formed Hamas as their branch in Gaza, basically. And Hamas became kind of a rival to Arafat Secular Fatah Party, which basically was, basically there's the Palestine Liberation Organization, also a terrorist organization. Their whole thing is also that they don't like Israel, they don't believe in a Jewish state, they don't believe in, you know, Jews having Israel, they want the whole thing for themselves, they hate Jews, right? So... They're, they kind of had this, um, they were kind of the ones who were kind of like the leaders in Gaza. Obviously, is they didn't have, like, there was an Israeli presence there, so they weren't, like, self-governing. But their leader, Arafat, who was part of, it was a little more secular. It wasn't radical Islam, at least to my knowledge. Again, a lot of these things I'm saying I, I'm no expert in. And it's all based on research, so there's a lot of things that are not going to be... I mean, I try to be 100% accurate, but they're not going to be as nuanced and as maybe... Not even nuanced, as detailed as I would have liked, because I just don't have all the information. Anyways, so the, the Hamas becomes a rival to this other anti-Israel organization. Like, they both share a common enemy. They just had kind of different, you know... Different, you know, disagreements. So, Hamas is formed, okay? Then, 1993, there's the Oslo Accords. Oslo? capital of Norway and so what the Oslo Accords were 
was basically, it was building upon or kind of mirroring the Camp David Accords, which made peace with Egypt in 1978 in the years following the Yom Kippur War. Um, so basically, it was this, the, this peace treaty, basically, between Arafat, leader of the, at that time of the Palestine Liberation Organization, kind of like a representing Gaza, and the Israeli Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin. And what they were trying to do in this, because again, there was, it was just after, like six years after the first intifada, there's just a lot of conflict. What they were trying to do is make some kind of concession. Again, Israel tries to concede. They try to do things that will make these Arabs stop attacking them. And they we now are realizing more and more every single decade, every single conflict, every single day that you can't appease them because they want everything burned to the ground. They want this country for themselves. Okay? And again, I keep saying they, and I mean a lot of Arabs. Not all, not most. I have no clue how many it is. A good amount because thousands of terrorists burst into this country and slaughtered Jews. Okay, so what basically this these accords were meant to do between Robin and Arafat was basically to create the Palestine Authority, basically to make a limited Palestine government and, you know, make let Palestine have some control of Gaza and the West Bank and Eureka. And then within a five-year period, eventually, Palestine, they would just have total governing powers. They could do whatever they want govern themselves. But then Palestine kept attacking. And then Israel subsequently starts amping up security. So then Palestine's like, hey, you told us you're going to let us do our own thing and have more control over ourselves. So why are you sending in the army more? And obviously the answer is because you kept attacking us. So then the deal totally fell apart, right? So the whole agreement of, you know, they're going to get to govern themselves totally fell apart when they kept attacking and kept attacking Israel. Yeah. Second Intifada, 2000, the year 2000 was the start of that. And again, just bus bombings that people are very familiar with because people was more recent, right? So there was bus bombings, rock throwing, etc. A lot of a lot of terrorist attacks. And then in 2005, Israel at this point was ready to leave Gaza to its own devices. So in 2005, Israel totally evacuated troops and Israel had... There were Jews, there were Israeli citizens, civilians, living in Gaza. Israel took them out, basically said, get out, we're leaving Gaza to itself. They built a security fence, and they said, you are on your own, right? Anyone who says that Israel occupies Gaza, it's an open-air prison. They literally tried to let them do their own thing. They would not stop attacking. Finally, they said, you're, up to, you're on your own, and they left, and they, didn't, they aren't occupying it. They took out all their troops. So when anyone says that, you say they left in 2005. That was 18 years ago. Okay? They're not occupying Gaza. It is not an open-air prison. They let people come into work. And the only limitations they made were because they were shipping in material for terrorism. You, you can't ha- let Gaza and these people have... Obviously, there are innocent people there. But you can't let this country have unlimited you know control of ports and borders when they're shipping in material for terrorism and the reason that i say they and i kind of am able to generalize is because listen to this in 2006 guess who palestine elected as their government hamas hamas won palestinian parliamentary elections and they seized control of gaza by 2007 hamas runs gaza so any restrictions is because they have neighbors whose government is a terrorist organization. So no, it's not an open-air prison. 
They did it to themselves, okay? And obviously, I feel for the innocents, but I also recognize the reality that Hamas is the elected government of Gaza, okay? So they overthrew Arafat and his whole Palestinian Liberation Organization and his whole kind of, you know, secular party of Fatah. They put restrictions in to limit Palestinian movement into Israel because why would you let people who could potentially be terrorists into your country? And here's the, here's the real thing that is important. Anyone who says this is a race thing, Israel hates brown people, Israel hates Arabs, they're Islamophobic, they are putting apartheid, it's, it's terrible. Guess what other country did the same thing to Gaza? Egypt. Egypt, which is full of Arabs, and is they are not white. Okay, they are Muslim. They did the same thing, and they blocked we limited, you know, again, the trade that could be done between Gaza and Egypt. They blocked off those borders, and it's very intense security because they also recognize that a country run by terrorists, they should not be allowed to run into your country, okay? A lot of countries also at this point halted aid so that they were sending to Gaza, to, like, the civilians because they recognize that Hamas is a terrorist organization. You don't send aid to a country run by terrorists and rest your Joe Biden, and you send Iran $6 billion dollars. They also blocked the flow of goods to prevent Hamas from getting weapons because Hamas, newsflash, doesn't care about their people. They care about terrorism. So when Hamas took over, did they say, okay, let's make things a little nicer. Let's build you guys houses. Let's, let's build roads. Let's pave, pave roads. Let's, let's create infrastructure in a thriving, healthy society. Did they say that? No. They instead totally let, used all the aid coming in, any aid still coming in, used all the resources they had, to commit terror attacks, down to water pipes. They used water pipes to make bombs, okay? So no, you're not going to let any goods come into a neighboring country when you know it is run by terrorists who will use the goods coming in to kill your people, okay? Establish that. That was 2006, 2007. From then on to 2023, again, different rockets, different attacks, little, you know, times where there was, it was more attacks, times where there was less. Over the, that, you know, 17, 16, 17 year period. Now, let's look right before the attack in 2023, right before the October 7th attack. At that point, there were 18,000 Gazans who had permits to work in Israel. Israel was providing Gaza with around 50% of its energy, 10% of its water. So Israel was doing more than maybe they should have for a country run by terrorists. And again, you feel for those civilians. You also recognize that your national security has to come first, Okay. And people are making the point, Israel just blocked, shut off the flow of energy and water into Gaza. It's like, well, if they were providing it in the first place and now they're at war, last I checked, you don't provide your enemies with resources, okay? And again, I feel for those civilians, and Israel is doing its best, which we're about to get into, we're literally about to get into, doing its best to prevent any harm to civilians, but at the end of the day, they're at war and have the full right to defend themselves and more so not help their enemy by giving them resources. Okay? So that's up to the war. That's up to the start of this whole conflict. Basic history and basic overarching themes. So now let's talk about a few narratives we're hearing. And I'm going to spend most of this episode talk answering questions from people that I got. So really, yeah, a lot of the things I'm, you might think I should be addressing are going to be addressed in the questions, just not here. Number one, overarching theme that is a totally false narrative. If Israel gives them what they want, 
there will be peace, right? There's this notion that they just Israel just needs to, you know, they just they just want to stop being oppressed. They just want their own land. They just want to live peacefully and Israel just keeps attacking them. That is absolutely false as we've discussed in the past half hour. There will not be peace if Israel gives them what they want because they don't want Israel to exist. So that is false. Number two, this is a very interesting kind of discussion, right? Anti-Zionism practically today is anti-Semitism. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a hardcore Zionist. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, obviously there's different religious views toward there being a state of government in Israel. But what I mean by that is I mean that people who are calling for Israel to not exist as a country, there is nowhere else for Jews to go. And they are calling for basically kind of in practicality, calling for Jews to be homeless and calling for Jews to end up, you know, being killed. Jews, the reason that, you know, this, as horrible as it is, is not as bad as the Holocaust, obviously in scale. I'm saying the reason this isn't as scary as the start of something larger is because this is a Jewish state. It's because Jews have a home here and they feel safe here and they have somewhere to run to when things go bad. Calling for there be, to be no place is anti-Semitic because the, it will cause unimaginable harm to Jews. And yeah, basically anti-Zionism in practicality today is anti-Semitism. You see this in many different areas. Also, another point we need to bring up. There is no moral equivalence here. People like to say, well, both sides need to just make peace. It needs to be a peace fire. Both si- not peace fire, a ceasefire. Both sides need to just stop attacking each other, etc., etc., etc. Okay. That is not is a horrible misrepresentation. One side is slaughtering civilians, is marching into a country and literally beheading people, burning them alive and slaughtering over 1,400 Jews in cold blood, unprompted, because they hate Jews. The other side then says, okay, we need to defend ourselves and we need to get rid of this organization, this terrorist organization full of murderers who want us all dead. Anyone who sees a moral equivalence in that and sees both sides as equally bad is really, okay, and there's this common, you know, refrain that do not attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. But, I mean, you got to be pretty stupid. So part of me thinks it is malice and these just people just hate Jews. And a lot of them definitely do. A lot of them are definitely just anti-Semitic, right? But there is no moral equivalence here. There is no both sides need to just make peace. No. Israel can't make peace because, like we said at the very beginning, for the entry music and everything, Israel is more than happy to live peacefully. But if they put down their weapons, there's no Israel left because the Arabs will keep attacking them. If... If Hamas and these organizations, Hezbollah and all these organizations stop attacking Israel, there will be peace because Israel has no reason to start random wars. Okay? There's no moral equivalence here. You cannot compare. Now, the reason that everyone, you start seeing all these claims that Israel is slaughtering children, children in Gaza is because Hamas uses their civilians as human shields. This is one of the most important things you need to understand. Probably a lot of you have heard and understand already. Israel does everything it can to protect their own civilians, right? We have the Iron Dome, right? We are Israel, the IDF is one of the most moral armies in the world. 
Okay, we do everything we can. We want to protect our people, and we want to only kill those we need to kill. So, that's one side. Hamas, right, the government of Gaza, and they are people running Gaza, they purposely put their civilians in harm's way. They have headquarters underneath hospitals. They have headquarters in largely populated civilian areas in, you know, places where there are lots of children, apartment buildings. Because, A, they just don't care about their people. And, B, here's the most important thing. They know this is a tool that they can use for propaganda. Because, let's, let's look at an example, okay? They fire, they fire a rocket. Israel tracks the source of that rocket. It is, let's say, under, in, coming from a hospital. So now Israel has a problem because they know there are terrorists harboring beneath that hospital. Gaza's full of tunnels and underground stuff or in the basement or whatever it is. So now they have a problem. They need to eliminate that threat so that their own people, Israelis, Jews, don't die. So they have a problem because there's civilians there. So then here's what they do. Here's what Israel does. Israel sends text messages, calls, sends flyers, puts up alarms, makes announcements. They say, if you are a civilian in this area, get out right now because we need to eliminate this threat. Get out, right? They, they tell them. They literally inform the public before the attack to make sure civilians have a chance to get out. And Hamas says, don't move. Stay here. Because then if Israel inevitably has to eliminate the threat and civilians die, you know, they do everything they can to prevent that. If civilians die, Hamas turns around and they say, look, the Jews are oppressing us. They're killing our children when it is Hamas killing their own children by putting them in harm's way. There's these memes that kind of go around. A very famous one is, not famous, one I've seen a lot is there's a picture of two, you know, fighters. One is an Israeli soldier, one is a Hamas terrorist. And the Israeli soldier, he has his gun, and behind him is a baby carriage, meaning he, that's what he's fighting for, that's what he's protecting. The other side, the Hamas terrorist, in front of him is the baby carriage because he uses that baby carriage as a human shield because if that IDF soldier accidentally kills a child or if that, uh, if, a, if a rock, you know, if a missile, if a strike is, is taken, is, you know, done to eliminate a threat and civilians die, Hamas then turns around to the world and says, look, they're killing our children. And people then think, think that Israel's overreacting. They shouldn't be killing civilians. There's a moral equivalence. Both sides just need to make peace. So that is what Hamas does, right? They use it as propaganda, right? Hey, guys, it's Editing SD. Just wanted to add something in as I was listening back, I realized. When I used the example of the hospital, I it was ner- I'm nervous that people would think that I was referring to the hospital bombing where a bunch of people died in Gaza um, because that was a rocket that Hamas fired and then they accidentally landed in Gaza instead of in Israel. And then they turned around and blamed Israel for it and then over-exaggerated probably the number of deaths and things we're not exactly sure yet because they lie through their teeth, obviously, but um, I wasn't referring to that. Obviously, I'm fully aware that Hamas fired that rocket and killed its own people. I was just using that hospital as an example, because obviously there are instances where Israel, unfortunately, does have to um, hit targets that are in civilian areas, obviously, but I wasn't referring to that specific instance, because obviously I'm aware that was not Israel. I just listened back, and I was like, ooh, like that might have not come out exactly clear. Another thing. Israel now realizes they're going to war with Gaza. 
and with Hamas, and they most of the fighting is going to be in the north of Gaza. So they're telling all the civilians to go to the south, right? They're telling them to evacuate. Hamas is telling them, don't listen to the IDF, don't evacuate. They're setting up roadblocks to prevent people from, from evacuating to the, to the south of Gaza because they want their civilians as human shields. They want them in harm's way so they can have them as propaganda tools when some of them inevitably, unfortunately, are killed. Okay? That is something you must, you know, be aware of. And it's one of the most important, you know, things that people are discussing that can just so easily be debunked. Okay? I saw a great, like, mushal, I guess. It's Hebrew term. If anyone's unaware, that means, like, a parable. means, like, a story is an example of something. So, imagine someone breaks into your house. They have a gun. They start attacking you and your family. You automatically rush to defend yourself because they are attacking your family. And that person who broke into your house and started attacking you brought his kids with. If you accidentally shoot one of his children, whose fault is it? It is the man who brought his children with him to break into and violently attack a family. Okay? That is not your fault if you, in the process of defending yourself and being as careful as you can not to harm the children, accidentally do so. That's as simple as it is. Next. Um, I think this is just kind of something I would wanted to mention. Why are people freaking out? Meaning Israel's gone through, you know, horrific things before. Israel's gone through a lot of wars and a lot of terrorist attacks. What makes this different? So I think kind of you can break it down into quality and quantity, right? So quantity. Let's do that first. It's more simple. 1,400 dead in basically a day. Because a lot of, you know, we kept hearing the death count go up. A lot of reason for that was because they were just discovering new bodies. They would go into a kibbutz and they would discover 100 bodies that had been killed those few days ago. They just weren't able to get into the kibbutz at that point. Right? So you have that massive number in one day. Unprecedented. It's basically like Israel's 9-11, except instead of just, you know, blowing them up and, you know, burning them to death, they literally went in and slaughtered them one by one. Bullets, knives etc. Fire, etc. Okay, so that makes it different in quantity. Also in quality. This isn't a civilized or relatively civilized country waging war for land and killing mostly soldiers and civilians kind of as, you know, get caught in the line of fire. And I'm not saying that these countries were justified in attacking Israel, but at least there was that kind of sense of normalcy in the war. This was not a war that Hamas started. This was a, and they started a war, but it was a massive terror attack where they literally just went in and started slaughtering innocent civilians in their homes. Okay? So that also makes things very, very scary. Now what we're going to do is talk about a little bit of what went wrong, just because it really is so remarkable the amount of things that went wrong. And you're going to kind of see the parallel between this and the Yom Kippur War. And I think this is important just so you can kind of understand just how, you know, crazy the amount of things that went wrong is. So let's just read some quotes from this article that I have. This is an article from Foreign Policy. Israel's two prime intelligence organizations tasked with providing a strategic warning alert as well as forestalling specific terrorist attacks from Gaza, act from Gaza are the General Security Service, known as Shabak or Shin Bet in Hebrew, 
which is in charge of human intelligence, human, but uses technolo- technological means, mainly signal intelligence, sig- sigint, or S-I-G-I-N-T, as well, and the military intelligence um, directorate, known as Amman in Hebrew, of the Israel Defense Force, which mainly uses technical means of collection. So they have these two organizations that are in charge of the cyber side of it, of, you know, technologically preventing people from breaking in. Israel's warning system against either small or large scale terrorist attacks from Gaza will head on three main defense layers. The first, consisting of mainly of the Shimbet's human resources, aimed at provide, to provide a warning that Hamas leadership had decided to plan, prepare, and execute a major offensive. Second layer, based on Amman's sigint sig- collection capabilities and imagery intelligence, involved collecting evidence about Hamas's actual preparations for the attack. So they have these ways to monitor what Hamas is doing to prevent attack. The third layer was a big ground barrier. So those weren't even really with the fence. Those were in general. The third layer is a big ground barrier along the border with Gaza, which integrated physical obstacles, electronic sensors, and other visual means aimed at providing a last line of defense against any attempt to break into Israel. So they monitor Hamas, and they also prevent these attacks with, you know, this mass, really, really high security gate. All three layers collapsed on the morning of October 7th. It did not provide any strategic warning on the nature and magnitude of the impending offense. That is crazy, right? They're, they, they're, all, everything failed. At the root of this blunder appeared to be two fundamental failures. The first is conceptual, as was famously the case in 1973, right? We say there's this parallel between the Six-Day War, where also it was an intelligence failure. A false but steady and solid joint estimate from the Shimbet and Amman had consisted of two elements. First, Israeli military and intelligence superiority would deter Hamas from initiating any major military attack. And second, if Hamas launched such an attack, the Shimbet and Amman would provide a timely warning. Right? The, the article goes on. It says that Hamas's relative restraint in recent years, meaning like there wasn't as much conflict as there used to be, and its apparent interest in continuing the flow of cash from Qatar and increasing the number of Gaza residents allowed to work in Israel enhances concept in the collective psyche of Israel, Israel, Israel's political, military, and intelligence leaders. So basically, they were too comfortable. The adherence to the calming concept led, led senior officials to ignore warning indicators prior to the attack. Over the past several years, civilian amateurs near the border have monitored Hamas's wireless communications in which troops organized and conducted endless training exercises in occupying... Israeli settlements. In recent weeks, these officers have received reports on irregular activities, such as disguised farmers taking photos of the border fence and Hamas troops with maps observing military strongholds and settlements on the Israel side, but just Israeli side, but disregarded them. There were warning signs that were ignored. Okay. Listen to this. There was even an eleventh-hour chance to deter or minimize the attack during the night of October sixth. Israeli intelligence detected some warning indicators that generated a series of late-night high-ranking consultations, but the flawed concept prevailed and no significant increase in the state of alert along the border was taken. The Shin Bet sent a few additional agents to the south, but Amman's director, Major General Aaron Halif, um, continued his vacation in a lot and no major deployments were made. The leader of Amman was in a lot. The amount of things that had to go wrong for this all to come together is kind of incredible. The second and even more astonishing failure is that of collection. It appears that the Shin Bet failed in its fundamental mission and provided no significant warning regarding Hamas's intention to launch a major attack. Its director, Onan Bar, on October 16th, took responsibility for the failure, and his colleague, Amon, and Amon followed suit shortly after. Right? Right, so basically they were too confident, and they didn't think this was possible, and they slacked. 
and this was able to happen. The article goes on for a few more paragraphs about the failures. Then it says, The last line of defense, the 40-mile barrier along the border, provided the Israelis with a false sense of confidence. Kind of remarkable how, how that's phrased, isn't it? Like, obviously, we as Jews understand that concept of we cannot have confidence in any physical things, but it's interesting the way that, that this secular article phrases it. Unless it's written by a Jew, I wonder. Check the, article, the author. Um, but when the IEF unveiled this $1.1 billion project upon its completion in December 2021, gave the impression that no terrorists would be able to cross it. Its main element was a huge subterranean anti-tunnel barrier with enough cement to build a road from Gaza to Bulgaria, as the IEF put it. This underground part of the barrier provided to be effective on October 7th. So the underground part didn't fail. They weren't able to dig tunnels underneath, but they were able to literally break through and waltz in on, on land. Um, there's also, again, like cyber elements of it, right? There was no way that Gaza could break in without the cyber, you know, things being alerted, um, without the IDF knowing. A bunch of drones knocked out a bunch of machine gun towers that were machine operated. Um, it's liter- it is really just failure after failure, and they all compounded to create this catastrophe. Another just remarkable thing compounded on this. The IDF also used three large observation balloons as a second line of pl- line platform to surveil Gaza and its southern, central, and northern sectors. In the weeks before the attack, weeks before, the three balloons were taken out of service due to their activation under suitable, unsuitable weather conditions, but the army neglected to return them to service. A few weeks before they took that observation, they took that, you know, other method out of, out of use and forgot and just didn't put it back. That kind of is incredible. So you kind of see here how just unprecedented and really remarkable in the worst sense this was. All these failures compounding onto each other. So obviously as Jews, our response to that is that we can't trust in physical things. That God can do what he wants, and if he wanted this to happen, then it was going to happen regardless of how, you know, supposedly effective our security was. But I just thought that was something definitely that was important to bring up, and obviously after this whole thing ends, there's going to be more investigations to determine consequences for the people who failed in their jobs. But right now, I think the main message we can take from that, obviously, is that this it was overconfidence, essentially. They were too confident in these, you know, protections. Okay, now, a few more common narratives, which maybe I should have put with the other common narratives, but my outline is just in this order, so we're going to go with it. Um, Number one, the both sides thing, which we discussed, how people say that they're morally equivalent, which is not true, but another thing I want to address is the propaganda aspect of it. Okay, because I want to make something clear. Every war has propaganda. Every single war. We are now in the age of social media. This is a major war. You saw the same thing with Russia and Ukraine. A major war happening with social media where it can literally be live streamed. Okay? There's a new kind of form of propaganda because of that. Where it it can spread in an instant. So people are not only saying both sides. They're actually downplaying what Hamas did. And saying it is propaganda and not true. And the videos are fake and the pictures are fake. And... I'm not going to deny that there have been individual instances of things that have been proven false. Not as much as people are saying. Not nearly as much. A couple instances of things that really couldn't be verified or which really you have to distinguish, which is a great, great quote that I saw. You have to distinguish between what 
isn't true and has been proven false and what hasn't been verified yet. That's one thing. But there, okay, there are a couple things that maybe, you know, some random dumb person on Twitter said that weren't true. Okay? That doesn't in any way diminish the horrific atrocities committed by Hamas because a few dumb people on Twitter told lies about specific instances that might have happened anyway, just the specific thing they were talking about didn't happen, okay? So the other side uses its own people as propaganda and time after time after time again claims Israel slaughters random children when they put their children in the line of fire on purpose and don't let them evacuate when Israel tries to help them evacuate. So comparing the two sides, not only in a you know military sense, but in a propaganda sense, and saying the propaganda on both sides is just as bad is also totally wrong. So you see even people on the right wing, you see right wing and left wing people saying that this is all propaganda and that this is false. And I just want to advise anyone who maybe see something said online, do not spread it unless you know it is true. Because even though the propaganda spread by people who people who um, maybe really do hate all Muslims, who really do say things that that hap- that didn't actually happen. Maybe they exaggerate numbers. And again, it doesn't make it worse. That doesn't make it any better. I mean, it doesn't make what Hamas did any better, but it fuels more hatred of Israel. So meaning, it's the same. It really, really is the same whether Hamas killed 10 babies in a certain kibbutz or 11 or 40 or 41. It doesn't make Hamas any less evil. So me saying this isn't trying to say, guys, make sure we don't make Hamas sound too bad. It's really just me saying you're fueling anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. You're fueling anti-Israel hate by spreading things that aren't true because then people have an excuse to say things like it's an exaggeration, which of course it is not. Okay? Another thing. How do we view civilians who are killed? Of course, we talked about the human shield element of it. So just kind of going back to that for a minute, we can feel bad about it and not want it to happen but not regret our actions and feel guilty, right? Israel, and this is what a lot of teachers I've been hearing from have been saying, Israel has the right to defend itself and the duty to defend itself and defend its people from harm. Absolutely, 100%, no caveats on that. They can also be sad and upset about the fact that because Gaza uses its civilians and Hamas uses its civilians as human shields, that some are going to unfortunately die. That is a very sad thing. It is also the fault of Hamas. Anyone who says Israel murdered these people, that is the fault of Hamas. Another aspect that's very, very sad is the brainwashing. Is that oh, these people in Hamas, in, in Gaza, are brainwashed by Hamas and brainwashed by radical Islamists to hate Jews. That doesn't... So there are a lot of Palestinians who I would still view as innocent who do hate Israel and hate Jews because that was the way they were raised since the day they were born. It's kind of an interesting thing to consider. These discussions come up a lot when you're talking about, you know, Hitler youth, where if you were told every single day of your life that Jews are bad, how much are you at fault if you hate Jews? Obviously, when you start to then act on those things, it becomes a whole other story. But just those sentiments. So are those civilians innocent? Are they guilty? Are they both? I think certainly Israel should exercise extreme caution and not try to kill any non-terrorists. But it is a very sad thing to consider, you know, another sad aspect of this and another sad aspect of the, what Hamas is doing is what they are training their citizens to believe, their civilians to believe. Another thing we need to consider 
is anyone who says who calls for peace and calls for a ceasefire, what they are implying is they want Israel to not defend itself. Because you cannot ra- reason with terrorists. That's a very big, you know, foreign policy concept is that you really you don't negotiate with terrorists. There are people who do it, it always ends badly. You don't negotiate with terrorists because terrorists cannot be reasoned with. Right? You can't deter them from their mission, you can't deter them from their hatred. Okay? Anyone who's saying we need, to, we need to cease fire really is implying that Israel should not defend itself and that Israel should just try to make peace just to be attacked again. Next, we need to discuss what is going on in America right now. The anti, which we're going to discuss at the very end because I have a question about it, but just in general, I'm going to mention it here. What's going on on college campuses, people online, literally being pro-Palestine, flying the Palestinian flag, chanting, you know, free Palestine from the river to sea, Palestine will be free. Essentially, they're pro-terrorists, right? I think we can all understand that. There was just an incident in Cooper Union where there was a free Palestine event and the, the, basically the Jewish students had to hide in the library, lock themselves in because there's literally a protest outside, essentially, in essence, calling for their murder. Because when you are pro, and we're going to discuss this, um, in a second, but when you are pro, literally in a second, but when you are pro Palestine and you're pro that institution at a time like this, you're implying that you support what happened. Okay. There's a fantastic video, fantastic video of a professor from Columbia who is Jewish, meaning we believe anyone whose mother is Jewish is Jewish. He didn't identify as Jewish. He says he's atheist, but he identifies as Israeli. So he's kind of his kind of thing he was talking about was more about Israeli than Jewish, but the, in essence, the message was excellent, saying these colleges can't protect these Jewish students, saying what is happening right now. He says, I would never send my child, he says, I would never send my Israeli child to an institution like this. He, as a professor there, says that. He says, I would never send my child here. And it really is terrifying, and we're going to get into more messages about that at the end, but I just thought I would mention it here. Now, I want to I wanna just discuss something that I thought about that... I think it's important that I hadn't really heard anyone discuss yet. It's more of a philosophical point. But, you know, when you just, like, think of those random things, you know when something really bothers you? And you know it bothers you because, obviously, it's horrific for these protests to happen. But it bothers you in another way that you can't put your finger on and then you put your finger on it. So that's what happened to me with this. Is Obviously, I was incredibly bothered and disturbed and horrified by anti-Semites and pro-Hamas terror, um, you know, pro-terrorist protests because it's horrific. But there was another thing that was bothering me because I was like, okay, they're saying free Palestine. So I was like, what if they really are naive? What if they really believe all the narratives that Israel's apartheid state and Israel oppresses the Arabs and they don't actually support Hamas, they just support Palestine? And then I was like, no, because I want to explain something here. When you truly believe in certain values and truly believe in certain causes what frustrates you more more than people who are against those concepts on the other side is people on your own supposed side who pretend to stand for those values but are frauds or but but do something incredibly harmful to it for example um and i'm gonna give a very specific example but i just want to give the general concept when there's someone who claims to be pro-life so i'm pro i'm pro-life right Let's say there's someone who's pro-choice openly. That disturbs me. I think you shouldn't be pro-choice, and I think that we should have the discussion, and I think that you're wrong. 
you're entitled to your opinion, you stand by your beliefs, fine. Someone who claims to be pro-life, but then undermines the pro-life cause by doing extreme things, like saying things like, like, um, anyone who aborts their baby should go to jail for life, and they should be, it's like, they get death penalty, that's not helpful, and that doesn't, that doesn't actually align with my beliefs, right? That's obviously the discussions we need to have about legality and things like that, but that makes me angry because you're hurting my case. You're hurting my cause and you pretend to stand with me. This is a very, very personal example I'm going to give now. Something I saw online. It's a little graphic. So if you don't want to hear it, if you get bothered by things like that, I don't know, maybe skip forward 30 30 seconds to a minute. But this is just something that when I thought of this concept, immediately my brain went to this example because it bothered me so much and it's going to help me prove what I'm trying to explain here. Okay, I want to read you something. Um, and again, warning, I, I really found this really gross. Um, there's an, a headline from the New York Post on Twitter. Mississippi girl, 13, gives birth after being raped, unable to get abortion. Okay, horrific story. Doesn't matter, pro-life, pro-choice, horrific story. Okay, doesn't matter what your beliefs are. So... Obviously, we have to discuss these are things we have to grapple with as a country of how do we respond to things like that? How do we legislate things like that? And there's a conservative. I think he either runs the Babylon Bee or he works at the Get Babylon Bee. Seth Dillon. And I like him. I think he's good. I think this was a mistake and he deleted the tweet after and he said it was a mistake. He said, it's really gross. So again, if you don't want to hear it, skip forward. She could always dress him in a should have been aborted onesie. So no one ever mistakenly thinks he's wanted. Essentially making a joke out of it, okay? And I thought that was a horrible tweet. I thought that was horrific because it undermines the conservative pro-life cause. As people who are pro-life, we have to be compassionate and we have to not, you know, make jokes like that because that undermines our cause, that hurts our cause. So more than a pro, uh, pro-choice person, that bo- this bothers me more because it hurts my cause because you're pretending to stand with the beliefs that I stand with you go ahead and say something like that. So I responded and I said, we aren't going to bring anyone over to our side by mocking rape victims. This isn't the right response. This is one of the most horrific things we have to grapple with as a country. But either side, exploiting child rape victims, it doesn't know is wrong, right? That really made me angry. And that's how I responded, right? So when you support a value truly, not the idea of the value, you support a value, truly support it. When people on your supposed own side undermine that by doing horrific things like saying what Seth Dillon said and later deleted and said that it was wrong to say, rightfully deleted, right? I also shared a thought for a minute there, but that means you truly stand by those beliefs. I stand by being pro-life so much that when someone who pretends to be pro-life says something horrific, I'm very angry because that hurts my cause. Now, how does this have to connect with what we started with? So if let's say you truly believe in Palestine being liberated and Arabs having all the freedom because you're really just uneducated and you think Israel is oppressing Hamas. Is it not oppressing Hamas, it's oppressing Palestinians. So what should make you extremely angry is bad actors on your own side. Is Hamas terrorists slaughtering innocent civilians. That should make you angry because you should say you're hurting your own cause. That should make you extremely angry because you should say, yes, I want free Palestine. But you, by doing this, are 
totally undermining the cause that you supposedly, you know, stand for by slaughtering innocent civilians and just totally destroying your case for having freedom. That should bother you immensely. So your response should be to condemn Hamas, even if you support free free Palestine, because your values say you want peace and you want Hamas, you want Palestinians to be free. So Hamas should make you extremely angry because they hurt your cause, because they make everyone hate, not want Palestine to have its own country even more. And again, obviously, these are all based on false narratives, but that's the concept. But what is the response of these college students and these people on Twitter to support Palestine in that cause? It is not to condemn Hamas, which would actually help their cause, make them seem like rational people. It is to support Palestine, which implies they support what they have witnessed coming out of Palestine, which is Hamas. Hope that made sense. That is kind of what I've been thinking about a lot lately. But... Yeah, that's really, it was a very long circle. I hope you got the connection I was trying to make, but that really was a light bulb moment for me. And if you got that great, if you didn't, totally fine. Last thing to point out before we get into questions, um, which is going to be the bulk of, oh gosh, we're already really late in, but um, it's going to be kind of the rest of the episode, is this whole thing with the colleges and with the people on Twitter, is this is one of the most important things you can know as someone who's coming from me, someone who's very involved in politics, one of the most important things you can understand is how to spot an ideologue, okay? An ideologue is someone who will not go against their own side and will not, cannot be, their mind cannot be changed. If you go up to someone and that you ask, are you pro-life or pro-choice? I'm just giving you an example. And they say, I'm pro-choice. And you say, was there any, is there anything I could tell you that could change your mind? If they say no, they're an ideologue. If they say no, there is nothing that can change my mind. No evidence, no proofs, no arguments. I am committed to this idea just because of the idea, not because of the value of the idea, because I don't care if you debunk anything I say. I will not change my mind. That is an ideologue. These people are ideologues. These people will not go off of their pro-Palestine messaging no matter what, because they are incapable of their minds being changed, okay? That's a very important spot. So either they're actually evil, or they're brainwashed, or they're ignorant, but either way, they are ideologues. That is incredibly important to know. Also, it's important to know in the political space because you know who to debate and who not to debate. I am more than willing to debate people on the other side, I've done it on my podcast before. I will not debate people whose minds will not be changed. I'll debate people who are honest and who truly believe in what they, the values they stand for, but are willing, if they find out what they believe contradicts with the core values they hold, they will change their mind. Okay? Now, we're going to get into questions. That's going to be a lot of this episode just because um, it covers a lot of ground. Number one, I'm going to shout out the people who gave the questions. This first question is from Tali. She said, was there something specific that prompted the Hamas attack? Very similar question I got from Gavi, my sister. Why is there a war? So what prompted this? Why is there a war? Let's talk about it. So number one is the general hate of Israel and hate of the Jews, right? 
heard their refrain from the river of the sea, Palestine will be free. They hate Israel. They want to slaughter Jews. It's hard for us to relate to that concept of just being so hateful, right? Hard for us to relate to being terrorists. You know, these people are human, but in the, you know, broadest definition, loosest definition of the word human I could give. Simply speaking, they just hate in a way we're not really able to understand. So yeah, that's why we ask these questions, but we just don't understand the way these people think. We don't understand, you know, the sheer hatred. Also, just on that note, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. People who are justifying that reminds me of, if you remember, um, maybe people weren't aware of this, there was a lot of anti-white farmer violence in South Africa lately. There was these radical black supremacist groups chanting, kill the boar, which means kill the white farmer. And there was these really intellectual, over-intellectual articles saying, they're not actually saying kill the white farmer, even though they literally just said kill the boar. Boar means white farmer. They don't actually mean it, which obviously is totally silly. But the similar idea. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You're chanting that as Hamas terrorists went into the country and slaughtered innocent Jews, so you kind of are implying that you support it? Just like putting that out there. Um, also, another thing is the timing of this is definitely not accidental. 50 years ago, almost to the day, was the start of the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War started October 6, 1973. Started in similar ways. It was a surprise attack on a holiday where they were very unprepared. It took five hours for the first IDF soldier to get, you know, to the border to respond to this attack. Right? Similar thing with Yom Kippur War where they were very, very unprepared. It was a holiday. So that's another thing with the timing that is not random. Now, let's get a little more specific and talk about specific instances lately that prompted this war and we're going to talk about why Hamas cares about that and the reason is that it's Iran who is pushing them to care um okay so let's first talk about the Saudi Arabia peace deal right Saudi Arabia was making a peace deal with Israel seems like things were going pretty well here's an article from before the war from September of 2023 talking about how Saudi Arabia is making a peace deal with Israel finally really kind of this really revolutionary peace deal if it would have gone through. In this article, it's kind of remarkable. In this article, listen to this, quote, the Israeli prime minister went on to note that there was a fly in the ointment. The fanatics ruling the Iran, Iran will do everything they can to thwart this historic peace. He denounced Iran for its terrorist acts, including through proxies, threatening international shipping, holding foreign nationals as hostages, killing and arresting many of its own citizens, and supplying drones and missiles that bring death and destruction to innocent people in, Ukraine, in the Ukraine. Yet the regime's aggression is largely met by indifference in the international community, he said, stressing to stop Iran's nuclear ambitions. This policy must change. Sanctions must be snapped back. Wow. So you have this article from before saying Iran's not going to be happy about Saudi Arabia's peace deal. So Iran, which we're going to talk about later, Iran supports and funds Hamas, we're going to talk about that in a lot of detail. So Iran is not happy about this. So they, that was one thing that prompted the attack. Why is Iran, is Iran not happy about this? Let's get into it. Saudi Arabia and Iran are rivals. Iran, there's two branches of Islam, Shia and Sunni. Iran is Shia, Saudi Arabia is Sunni. Both of these countries want to be leaders of the Muslim world. Saudi Arabia was the leader. It's the most holy, like, has the most holy sites in Islam. It was the leader of the Muslim world. Then in, nine, in 1978 to 1979, Iran had an Islamic revolution where basically it went from a totally 
like went from a regular country to a totally, you know, totalitarian society run. But I mean, it was obviously a dynasty before and it was an oppressive government, but it wasn't, you know, a radical Islamist government. The um, revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran, basically put in an Ayatollah, made it made a totally, you know, Muslim Shia government. Okay, so that was a challenge to Saudi Arabia. So they both kind of, you have these two massive Islamist powers, right, in that region. And both want to influence the rest of the world, both want to influence the rest of the Islam world, Muslim world. They both are always engaged in proxy conflicts. They never really actively go to war against each other, but they have different branches, you know, different terrorist organizations that they support that, you know, engage in proxy wars, kind of indirect wars with each other. They exploited the Arab Spring to do the same thing, to put in who they wanted when there was all this upheaval, which is Arab Spring is fascinating to research and to learn about. I talked about it at the beginning of my part one of my European immigration crisis episode. Go back and listen to that. Saudi Arabia and Iran were indirectly involved in that by, you know, funding different terrorist groups. Okay? So it's kind of like a cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where they're kind of engaged in proxy conflicts, but they aren't actually fighting each other. Another thing that strains their relationship Iran and Saudi Arabia is their connection to the U.S. and other Western countries. The nature of that will also impact the relationship. But in April, they kind of were reestablishing ties. Seems like things were maybe going to be a little bit more normalized, a little less tense between the two countries. Okay? Then the war broke out. So Iran got what it wanted, which was because, again, Iran hates Saudi Arabia. They don't want Saudi Arabia in any kind of alliance with Israel because they hate Israel. So right after the war started, the Saudis kind of put the deal on ice. They said, let's put a pause on it. Because, first of all, as an Arab country, it's already taboo for them to start making peace with Israel. Now this, there's this war, and they kind of, as an Arab country, have the responsibility to not make peace. Um, so they put the deal on ice. Iran got what it wanted. And just a quote from an article that kind of sums that up. The first source familiar with Saudi, Saudi thinking said Gulf states, including those with Israeli ties, were worried Iran could be drawn into a conflict that would affect them. So Saudis were worried that they, you know, a lot keep this peace deal going and then Iran gets involved in this conflict, which we're going to discuss if they're going to do that or not. Then Saudi Arabia will get drawn in and they don't want that. So Iran got what it wanted, got a pause on the peace deal. And obviously right now all these countries, Saudi Arabia whatever, they're all saying both sides and stop targeting civilians on both sides, etc. Another big flashpoint of this conflict is what has always been a flashpoint of controversy in Israel is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, you know, the Temple Mount, Dome of the Rock. It's actually controlled by the Jordanian government, this kind of organ of the Jordanian government. And it's really just been a, a set of conflict for a long time, reading some quotes from an article about it. The Temple Mount site is considered the holiest place in Judaism as the location of two biblical temples, although Aqsa Mosque is the third holiest shrine in Islam, making the area a major flashpoint in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Major conflicts and bouts of violence have broken out following events at the site, where Jews and not other non-Muslims are permitted to visit during certain hours may not pray under a status quo arrangement that has prevailed for decades. In recent years, Jewish religious nationalists, including members of the government, governing coalition, have increasingly visited the site and demanded equal prayer rights for Jews there, infuriating the Palestinian and Muslims around the world. Palestinian groups from, the th from throughout the political spectrum have also railed against restrictions imposed by the Israeli police on Muslim worshippers wishing to pray in the compound over the past week, 
after videos circulating on social media showed an altercation between Israeli officers and Muslims in the old city near the entrance to the mosque. Okay, so there's been a lot of controversy surrounding that this mosque and surrounding, you know, the Temple Mount, Dome of the Rock. Essentially, only Muslims are allowed to pray there. Jews, anyone else can go there, they just can't pray. More Jews have been saying that's not fair, we want to pray there. Palestinians have said that Israel is being too oppressive, the Israeli police are attacking them, when a lot of times Palestinians, like, well, they're rocks and stuff, so kind of, you know, you have to look at everything here. It's a huge site of conflict, and Palestinians think they're being oppressed, even though they really are the only allowed to pray there. They still think they're being oppressed in that regard, and that there's being restrictions put on it, because, yeah, there are times when there's restrictions put on Who's allowed to pray there if there's, you know, national security risk because there's a lot of violence, um, a lot of terror attacks. There's going to be restrictions. So, yeah, they view that as more oppression, and that is another reason. They've quoted this. Hamas has, you know, stated this as a reason um, for their attack. So that's another major thing. And lately, it's been even worse. So that's another reason. Those are some reasons for the attack. I think the main thing is that they hate Israel and hate Jews, but obviously the timing and... Meaning, like, you know, a few years after the, six day, after the Yom Kippur War, right around the Saudi peace deal time. Those are kind of some things that have caused it. Next, is there any chance of nuclear war? Is another question from Tali. So I did a bunch of research on this because I think it's a very fascinating thing to research. First thing we need to start with is look at, let's look at which countries have nuclear weapons. Right now, there are nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. The U.S., Russia, France, China, the U.K., Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. In total, all the nuclear weapons in the world, there's around 13,000 of them. Okay? So, there's a few things we need to discuss when we talk about nuclear war and nuclear weapons. First thing, we need to discuss how the possibility of nuclear war influences the choices countries make. Right? The choices we make as a country, the choices that all these countries make, are impacted by, you know, the either presence or absence of nuclear weapons in the the morality of the countries that have those nuclear weapons. But we always discuss, why don't we just, you know, send a strike and kill Kim Jong-un? Because there's someone waiting behind the scenes to take over for Kim Jong-un. And if we start up with them, they have nuclear weapons. That really impacts what we do. People are very nervous for the U.S. to get involved in the U- Russia's war against Ukraine because Russia has nuclear weapons. And obviously, we're very familiar with, you know, Soviet Union trauma like kind of you know trauma from the cold war of you know being terrified of nuclear war Cuban missile crisis all these different things okay so one thing we need to consider is that countries take into that into account because they know who has nuclear weapons they know who wants to use it for bad countries have nuclear weapons a lot of them to maintain that power North Korea has nuclear weapons because now they know they can kind of do their own thing and maintain, you know, that dictatorial regime regime in North Korea because no one's really going to start up with them because they can just, you know, start a war. And that's one thing. And start a nuclear war, not just a regular war. The war very, very, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of, you know, worldwide, specific to Japan, but also worldwide kind of trauma from Hiroshima and Nagasaki of those two, you know, atomic bombs that we dropped on Japan and the Second World War. So there's a lot of, you know, like kind of collective trauma we have as a response to that. And that really impacts the way we think about these things. That's the reason we ask these questions. And that's the reason we discuss these things. So nuclear weapons can also be 
a way of leverage, you know, a way to maintain power, just like having hostages. You know, Israel is much more hesitant to do things because they know they have their own people in, in Israel, in, in Gaza, as hostages. Countries will be very hesitant to do things if they know that the country they're doing it against has a weapon that can cause mass destruction. Okay? Now I want to read an, a specific quote from an article that discusses specifically, you know, the discussion of past concern over Israel. Because Israel has nuclear weapons. Past discussion of Israel um, and nuclear war. Quote from an article. Is, a significant, is this significant uncertain risk? It highlights the prominence of the American factor in the current equation. Here's a reminder. 50 years ago, on October 7th, 1973, the second and worst day of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, Israeli Defense Minister Moshe Dayan asked Prime Minister Golda Meir to mobilize the readiness of Israeli nuclear weapons, presumably to assemble the weapons, for a demonstration. It's also alleged by some, including Seymour Hersh in his book The Samson Option, that U.S. President Richard Nixon's decision on October 12, 1973, to start an immediate airlift to Israel, was taken due to an Israeli nuclear war. So... Israel has nuclear weapons. There have been concerns, you know, over if they'll have to use them. Obviously, they have them for good reason because they have countries who want to destroy them and it is an option they have in their arsenal to prevent, you know, certain actions taken against them. You know, it's kind of a defensive thing almost, right? That if you have this kind of thing, this huge threat hanging over, you're preventing other countries from doing things that many countries would like to do to Israel, okay? So that's something to consider. Now we need to talk about the main kind of elephant in the room, which is, does Iran have nuclear weapons? And that gets into a discussion about the Iran nuclear deal. Short answer is no, Iran does not have nuclear weapons. Again, Iran is who's behind this, is behind Hamas. So essentially what the Iran nuclear deal was, was it removed some sanctions from Iran. Again, sanctions are kind of blocking Iran's access to money in different countries. You know, basically cutting off funding from them you know, cutting off the money we're giving them, essentially. It was cutting that off. It was removing some of those sanctions, so kind of opening Iran up to having, you know, access to more, like, sources of money, right? In exchange for us very closely monitoring Iran's nuclear program and preventing them from developing nuclear weapons because, obviously, Iran is a country that is led by terrorists. It's a terrorist regime. It it funds terrorism all over the world. So, obviously, them having a nuclear weapon would not be a good thing. It was a terrible deal, a disastrous deal, because it essentially was, you're paying, you're moving sanctions, is basically paying the terrorist organization, and then just hoping they keep up their side of the deal. We had some, you know, monitoring access, but not enough monitoring access. We had, um, you know, certain restrictions, but really there was still very much a chance they could develop a nuclear weapon. It seems as if they didn't. We really would have no idea because they're, the whole reason the whole nuclear deal start the whole Iran nuclear deal started was because we found they had secret places where they were developing. So we have no idea what they did in secret, but we were essentially just funding terrorism, funding, literally paying the Iran, right? And just saying, please don't make a nuclear weapon. Well, we're going to have some restrictions, but please don't make a nuclear weapon. Okay? So that was something what the Iran nuclear deal was. So that kind of tells you now that... They don't have a nuclear weapon for that reason, even though it was a disastrous deal. And I think that we have no idea. Right now, there's a website called Iran Watch, which monitors how soon Iran could, you know, develop a nuclear weapon because you have to enrich uranium enough to a certain level to get that. And 
it really, it just goes through, like, what are the chances they have a nuclear weapon? What when they get a nuclear weapon? So, it goes through, do they have secret sites? So, the bottom line is, all that to say, and they, they violated all these different, you know, rules against, like, monitoring nuclear weapons, etc. Right? Again. All that. So, they don't have a nuclear weapon, which is good, but also bad that and we pulled out of the iranic deal trump pulled us out of that deal because it was a disastrous deal okay but all that to say that there iran has in the past tried to develop nuclear weapons they don't have one right now but also i feel like we can never be too sure with these things and i don't know if that's a wrong approach to have but that's really what my main concern would be my main country that i'd be concerned about would be iran another thing we need to consider when we talk about is there a chance of nuclear war is when you talk about the Moscow-Tehran axis. So Moscow, capital of Russia, Tehran, capital of Iran. And again, Russia does have nuclear weapons. So there's no evidence Russia was directly involved in this whole, you know, in the Hamas war and funding it and anything like that. But they're kind of buddies with Iran. They get along pretty well. They're, they're allies. Russia has since called for a ceasefire, obviously because they need a, you know, kind of, set themselves up to be kind of, you know, neutral and able to gain what they can from the situation. So, um, just some, I guess, you know, things about Russia. Quote from an article here. For the past two years, there have been three flashpoints all involving Russia. It's invasion of Ukraine, it's ne- the, the latest Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, and the bloody incursion of the Hamas's military wing into Israel. Russia plays various roles in all three. In Ukraine, it is the invader. In Nagorno-Karabakh, it is the intentionally failed peacekeeper. And as for Israel, it's a weak partner who colluded with the Iranian regime, as well as with Iran Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who acting as a meddling influence on the balance of power in the Middle East. So they kind of, what Russia kind of does here, they're trying to see what they can get out of this. They are allies with Iran, and there definitely is some involvement. They are trying to stick, bud their head into this conflict. At the same time, because most countries really try to avoid conflict, Russia is run by someone who tries to actively get involved in conflicts. At the same time, Iran has been leading the charge in, in clamoring for war against Israel now, an aggressive stance since most Arab, most Arab countries have meanwhile given up on because of its futility and great cost. Meanwhile, Russia is indisputably buying weapons for its war against Ukraine from Iran, while, from Iran while forging a tenuous alliance with Tehran and Syria, where Moscow intervened to keep Bashar al-Assad's authoritarian regime in power by any means necessary. Basically, what I'm trying to explain here is that Russia is allies with and buddies with Iran. Russia does have nuclear weapons, so there's something to keep in mind. We're going to get into, in the end, like, what my actual opinion is and what I think really is the, the right, you know, the end of the conclusion to this, but we're just trying to, right now, I'm not trying to give you and tell you yes or no. I'm just trying to show you the responses and the nature of the different countries that have nuclear weapons. Next, and also... Some of these countries that have nuclear weapons, some are sending aid to Gaza. Some are allies of Gaza and Hamas, and some are not. Some are just Western idiots who are sending things thinking it's going to help civilians, but really it's not. There's this picture that was going around on Twitter, which I'm pulling up right now, it, that shows this picture of this, assuming like this hostage. It's not like a graphic picture or anything, but it, he's laying on, like, his, again, Hamas live streams this entire thing. It's not like a graphic picture, but he's laying on these sandbags, and you, you read what's closely on the sandbags, has a Japanese flag, and it says, for free distribution to Palestine refugees. 
So these countries that are sending aid, Hamas is taking it and using it for their terrorist activities. So that's just something she bring up really quickly, but some of these countries that have nuclear weapons are active allies. Some are allies of the West who are just dumb. Obviously, Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons, but countries like that, right? So that's, again, something to keep in mind. I'm trying to give you all the information right now, and then we're going to kind of tie it all together. Another country that has nuclear weapons is North Korea. North Korea, um, there's evidence that some of the weapons being used by Hamas were from North Korea. Next, Pakistan. Pakistan's caretaker prime minister, there's been a lot of like conflict in Pakistan lately, so I don't really know what that term actually means, but a leader in Pakistan said the two-state solution does not at all mean accepting Israel as a separate state. Um, the solution of the Israel-Palestine dispute is a two-state solution, which the Palestinians themselves demand, which is silly because they literally rejected it in 1948. After that, civility can be seen in the Middle East. So Pakistan is kind of taking the Palestinian side. China just wants to benefit in any way that it can. <laughs> They're going for a ceasefire. They want to stay neutral so they can kind of get what they want out of the conflict. Some quotes about that. Making his first remarks since the conflict began, Xi, which is the president of China, said during a meeting in Beijing with Egyptian Prime Minister Mostafa Mazbouli that the establishment of an independent state of Palestine through a two-state solution was the fundamental way out of the conflict. It was a neat encapsulation of how Beijing is trying to promote two key diplomatic aims, bolstering its status as a champion of developing countries, at the same time it is positioning itself as a superpower to rival the United States in a multipolar world, with some notable um, with some notable support. Chinese officials have yet to directly condemn Hamas for the rampage, in which the militants massacred at least 1,400 people and abducted nearly 200, according to Israeli authorities. In fact, they've avoided even mentioning the militant group that runs Gaza and instead have said they oppose harm to civilians in what they term the Israel-Palestine conflict. So they're kind of pro-Palestine, kind of n pretending to be neutral. The criticism of Israel, however, has been far more direct. Wang, he's like, I think, the foreign minister in China, denounced Israel for going beyond self-defense and called for an end to the collective punishment of the Gazan people. China's top diplomat has also intensified rhetoric around Beijing's preferred outcome of a two-state solution. The Jewish nation is no longer homeless in the world, but when will the Palestinian nation return to its home? Oh my gosh. He said last week, the injustice to Palestine has dragged on for over half a century. The suffering that plagued generations does not continue. Obviously, that's so dumb and anti-Semitic because there's one Jewish state in half of the region, more than half, uh, majority of the region is Arab. For China, the crisis is a chance to establish itself as a deal-maker in the Middle East, win ground from the United States in an area in which Beijing lacks experience and strengthen partnership with Russia and across the Arab world. China's calculations might change if the fighting spreads. And these are like different quotes, analysts said, but for now it appears to consider the current flare-up of violence an opportunity to strengthen its influence in the region relative to the United States. The way that this is playing out is not necessarily a bad thing for Beijing. If it remains a Hamas-Israel conflict, China can offer rhetorical support for the Palestinians, criticize Israel, score points in the U.S. while they on the U.S. while they do so, and it's not going to affect the great, their greater strategic interests in the region. So China's trying to get what it can get out of it. Trying to pretend they're being a peacemaker. Trying to pretend they stand with all the sides. They're really trying to benefit from the conflict. So again, China also has nuclear weapons. So keep that in mind. Again, most of these countries, they're not using, there's not, it's not even a discussion. I just want to, like, feel like being thorough and picking a bunch of these countries and really just explaining their view can kind of help, you know, understand more of these discussions. Okay. So keeping all that in mind, is there going to be nuclear war?
Probably not. Has there been concern regarding Israel nuclear war in the past? Yes. Is the reason Israel's nuclear weapons because they need it to defend themselves and prevent countries from doing anything too radical, which obviously didn't work? Yes. Also, you know, there's reasons these countries have nuclear weapons. Some use it to maintain their own power, like North Korea, Russia, China, you know. So they also use it to kind of as a threat on other nations to prevent other nations from doing anything too radical. So kind of what these nuclear weapons are is they're kind of checks on people, on, you know, people in, you know, doing things that these countries don't want because they have that as leverage. They can say, well, we have something that can destroy half your country and murder thousands of people. So do I think there's going to be nuclear war? No. Are there people who discuss that and who have these conversations? Definitely yes. But if you examine all these things, I said China cares about itself. North Korea, the reason it has nuclear weapons is because it's trying to defend its own interests. Pakistan is kind of talking about this dumb two-state solution thing. Pakistan's also really kind of preoccupied, really kind of... India also has nuclear weapons, and Pakistan and India are kind of always engaged in conflict, so that's a big reason they have. Um, and there's always been fear of, you know, some kind of nuclear war between Pakistan and India. So that's kind of where, where they're coming from with it. Iran does not have nuclear weapons. Russia is kind of busy in Ukraine right now, but they also are trying to stick their head in wherever they can. So that's definitely my biggest concern if I had to pick one country. But again, I'm not an expert in any of this, and I'm trying to give you all the facts so you can kind of take them in and collectively make a decision. But do I think there's going to be a nuclear war? No. Because also, again, the trauma of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and just the what could happen to any country that tries to, you know, start a nuclear war, what will become of that country and the response from the international community is so great that obviously these are things that are going to be considered extremely, extremely carefully. And no, I don't think there's going to be a nuclear war. Another question from Tali. What's the likelihood of anything happening in Yerushalayim? So obviously Hamas's plan was not to stop in southern Israel. If they had it their way, they would have come all over the country. Obviously that was dumb, and Hamas is very dumb. Um, and obviously the IDF is not that incompetent. Um, They're actually incredibly competent. This was a massive failure. Um, but obviously if Hamas had their way, yes, that's the way it would be. But in general, Yerushalayim is one of the safest places to be in Israel, obviously. We're in the center. Um, and it's also a holy city for Muslims, too. So what they want to completely, obviously they want to kill all the Jews everywhere, but would they want to, you know, bomb the old city? I don't know. I don't know how much they care about these. Obviously they care a tremendous amount, it seems, about the Alaska Mosque and things like that. That's also something to consider. We've had rockets here, obviously, but Hamas's rockets are incredibly inaccurate. They have terrible aim. Some rockets they shot to, RB, to RBS, they meant to come, run by Jemish, right? They meant to come to Yerushalayim. The main concern is Hezbollah. Hezbollah is better trained. They are more accurate. A lot of the rockets can't reach, can't reach Yerushalayim. There are some that can, um, just according to my research. So even if they're not more precise, which it seems like they are, but even if they're not, they have just such a sheer number of weapons, much more than... And Hamas, both are funded by Iran, but Hezbollah is very, very well trained and very, very, very well funded. The sheer number just increases the danger because there's just a greater likelihood of them falling somewhere where people are if there's more, right? Obviously, again, the Iron Dome is incredibly effective, but also not perfect. So 
right now, it seems like your slime is very safe, but it's a very fetal situation. I would say the main concern is, yeah, obviously rockets. And also, people are very emboldened right now. Radical Islamists are very emboldened, you know, people in the West Bank, Arabs who already hated Jews, a lot of, like, meaning the ones who did, they see this as an opportunity, you know? They're very, very emboldened, you know, when one group, when one person does something, it kind of emboldens and encourages everybody else who maybe had these thoughts and just needed someone to do it first. So terrorist attacks definitely are a concern. Um, You know, we had the same, people are very concerned about, you know, like, maybe bus bombings happening again. I haven't heard anyone official discuss that, but I'm saying it's kind of on everyone's mind, you know? Because you never know what who's going to get any funny ideas now that this whole thing has been prompted. But obviously security is incredibly amped up, and right now the situation is just really very kind of stabilized until Israel goes into Gaza, and then it's all going to become, unfortunately, probably not, Uh, totally you know different situation but that's my thoughts on that next we have some questions from miriam so miriam first asked is iran going to get involved gavi my sister had a similar question will other countries get involved so let's talk about that in terms of funding iran has always been involved iran funds hamas iran funds hezbollah iran funds terrorist groups in iraq in syria in bahrain they fund the houthis in yemen they've been involved in that regard forever, right? Hamas's leaders right now are in Qatar. It's just a fun little fact for you. So, like, in terms of other countries getting involved, addressing Gabi's question a little bit, Qatar is a very, very close ally of Hamas. So, in that sense, Iran's always been involved, okay? Because the IDF is evacuating towns in the north, that also indicates a possible escalation, right? Hezbollah is much more powerful than Hamas, as we've said, and if Iran were intervene, were to intervene, it would probably be through Hamas, through Hezbollah. So it, Iran has threatened to intervene if Israel launches ground assault in Gaza, which they're going to do when Israel enters Gaza. Iran has threatened to get involved. Now, in what way will they get involved? Is this a bluff? Will they directly be getting involved? Will it be through a proxy? Iran has always done things through proxies. They've had other countries and other terrorist organizations do their bidding because they fund them and train them. Okay. So let's read kind of an article's perspective on that. This is from Sarah Bazubandi, who's a researcher at the German Institute for Global and Regional Studies. Iran is one of the longtime sponsors of Hamas. It is one of the group's main A's in terms of organizing, training, and logistics, smuggling weapons. In terms of the attack on Israel, there are points that raise the question of whether Iran was directly involved in its preparation. The expert points out one example, the infiltration of militants into Israel territory. One cannot learn to fly paragliders in the tunnels of Gaza or in an area that is under the watchful eye of the Israeli military. They practice and develop these skills elsewhere. She believes there will be no direct Iranian involvement in fighting. Instead, Tehran is likely to use Tehran's capital of Iran is likely to use the non-state organizations it supports. Iran is a master of creating and conducting proxy wars. They invest financially militarily, technologically, in the development of the so-called axis of resistance in the region. The reason for investing in its creation and expansion is that Iran has been trying to avoid direct confrontation with anyone since the end of the Iran-Iraq war. In the statements, the Iranian foreign minister mentions precisely the resistance axis reaction. 
So it seems like what's most likely, according to experts, and what seems most likely based on historically the way Iran has responded to conflicts, is that Iran's not going to directly get involved in, you know, actually be sending their own people and their own, you know, their own weapons in their own, you know, they're not directly going to be getting involved, but through these other terrorist organizations that they fund, they train, they provide with weapons, they support, that's kind of Iran's way of getting involved, right? So there could be an escalation with other countries, Lebanon, with Hezbollah, Syria, other Middle Eastern countries that Iran funds, right? Another quote from this expert, this woman says, and again, expert, we never really know who has which biases, but just kind of this is the best way I've found it explained. She says, Tehran will not send its military into the war zone to help Hamas. And then also there's an, um, that's, that's a quote from, not from her, that's a quote from someone else. Um, and again, if Iran were to get involved, obviously all these other countries that Iran supports would also get involved. In that case, the consequences could be catastrophic, not only for the region, but for the whole world. Another quote from this woman, um, Bazu Bandi, she says, I feel like I'm butchering that name. She says, I think we may actually be on the verge of a major war in the Middle East. Who's ready to escalate after the Israeli government ground operation in Gaza? Could be Iran, Hezbollah, the Yemeni Houthis, it's another radical Islamist terrorist organization. We are at a very dangerous stage in the modern history of the Middle East region. So definitely there is that concern. If Tron were to get directly involved, it would be an absolute disaster, definitely. Um, but also this this woman says that for, okay so first of all we the kind of assumption is Iran will not get directly involved they'll get involved through these other terrorist organizations just like they did with Hamas right it'll be Hezbollah Syria the Houthis etc but if they were it would obviously be catastrophic but what she also says is the Iranians despite their fiery rhetoric probably don't want a regional conflict it's a very difficult balance for everyone between taking enough action to not lose face but at the same time, not crossing borders or losing your head, right? Um, another, another person gives another quote, says, if we go into full-scale war, the U.S. and Israel will probably see this as an opportunity to destroy Iran's nuclear program, because, again, they're still like, kind of in the process of developing weapons, because, um, again, the Iran nuclear deal was a disaster and just funded more terrorism, which is closer than ever to developing nuclear weapons. This will come at a huge cost, military capabilities, and possibly huge human casualties. This is already the bloodiest war between Israel and its, advers- adver- its adversaries in decades. But Israel cannot... Oh, okay, that is a dumb statement. We're going to skip that. But essentially what these articles are saying or kind of gathering here is it seems what's most likely is Iran, once Israel goes into Hamas, that will trigger Iran being more angry and sending kind of its like minions, its other you know terrorist organizations that it funds. Like, obviously Hamas is... It, the one that's been attacking, and then Hezbollah and the Houthis and a bunch of other, you know, of its proxy, you know, arms in the Middle East. So that's, will Iran get involved? That's how we're going to answer that question, but obviously anything could happen. Another question from Miriam. Why are people in America getting involved? Like, why do they care about Israel and Palestine? Okay, so you actually kind of touch on something that is a kind of a discussion being had in the U.S. of isolationism versus imperialism or something in between. There are people in the U.S. who are very, very anti-Israel getting involved, not Israel, America getting involved in any conflict. They think Israel should, sorry, I keep saying Israel, America should stay out of it. America should focus on its own problems, its own crises, of which there are many, and not fund other wars, not fund other countries, not give aid, not send weapons, definitely not send troops. 
There are people who are very much into the idea that America should be getting involved in foreign conflicts, should be defending its own interests and defending its allies. And the people who are a little bit in between, people who think that sending weapons and money is different than sending our actual troops, our actual, you know, humans, our, you know, our sons, that that's another thing to consider. So there are a few views on that. But obviously, as we know, America and Israel are very close allies. So that kind of, I guess, is what you're asking is why. Why do people care? So Israel really represents America's interests in the region. This is a region full of leaders, full of terrorists who hate America. We saw this with 9-11, right? Who hate America. And the kind of 9-11 was a wake-up call almost. Also, the border crisis now where we're just letting people in. There are terrorists who are flying to Mexico and then coming in through the border into the U.S. People on the watch list of the FBI and the CIA and etc. And national security risks. So that's also a wake-up call. But we get these wake-up calls, right, every once in a while that there are people who hate America who want to kill us all and destroy us, just like they hate Jews and they hate Israel. They hate America too. They hate Western values. So Israel is kind of this beacon of democracy, this beacon of of, you know, American interests and Western interests in the region. Okay, I can read you some, you know, examples of that. Okay, this article says, Initially, Israel served as a countervailing force to Soviet influence, but this line of thinking persisted even after the Cold War. And it became even more pervasive after 9-11, when it was discovered that some of the perpetrators of the attack were citizens of Saudi Arabia, which the U.S. counted as another key ally in the region. Doubting that it could continue to rely on the Saudis, the U.S. leaned more heavily on Israel based on the perception that it had more shared values and interests. That includes a shared commitment to democracy. <laughs> Such a biased article. Okay, I'm going to skip that. Um, also, another, here's another quote. More recently, Israel has been a key pillar of the U.S.'s stated goal to create an integrated, prosperous, and secure Middle East, as it looks to turn its focus to other parts of the world, including Russia and China. The Trump administration facilitated agreements to normalize relations between Israel and several of its Muslim-majority neighbors, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco. There's speculation that Hamas's attack was intended to upend talks brokered by the Biden administration to also normalize relations between Israel and its main regional rival, Saudi Arabia, which we discussed, so that they can form a united front against Iran, a common enemy that financially supports Hamas, which we discussed also. Israel is in the American camp, no ifs, ands, or buts. We don't have time to even worry about it. And that's why Secretary Blinken is over there to show solidarity. That's a quote from, from Bainan, who's a professor at Stanford. So that kind of gives you some sense of the relationship, right? Israel has kind of been this beacon of, you know, Western values and democracy against a bunch of countries and, you know, oppressive regimes that hate Western values as well as hating Israel. You know, Israel really is kind of that 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 country in the Middle East for the U.S. So that's why they care. Obviously, there are people who want to be uninvolved, people who think that we don't need to be supporting Israel, we're just wasting our money. There are people who very much see the value in, you know, having that stronghold in the Middle East, having that strong ally against these people. So another question from Miriam. Does it look like this war is going to be long? Okay, so this is where we get a little bit, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but I also want to be as honest as possible. It is probably going to get better before, get worse before it gets better, 
right now it's just a blockade, right? It's Israel, you know, blocking people coming in from Gaza. It's securing the border. It is basically just preparing for a ground attack, preparing to go in on foot into Gaza. So right now it's a very, you know, like, I'm trying to think of the right word, very tense situation because it's just this waiting period. Obviously, Israel's goal is to wipe out Hamas. Obviously, if the conflict expands, that goal gets more complicated. We have to figure out how we address that, how we respond to that. But right now, it's kind of just this waiting period of waiting to go in and start hitting target after target. Obviously, there is that that air assault, you know, Israel um, bombing different strongholds of Hamas in Gaza. But that ground, once that ground operation starts, is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Okay. Also, there's another thing to consider is how long are these other countries going to support Israel? Support eventually could start to wane. Countries could start to lose interest and not want to keep supporting Israel in this war. If it escalates, also countries are going to get nervous because no one wants to start up with Iran. Other countries are going to start backing off. Also, if the propaganda keeps working, more countries will feel pressure to toe the line of being pro-Palestine because a number of world leaders have been remarkably pro-Israel lately and that could change unfortunately if more propaganda comes out and if the conflict expands and unfortunately the more Hamas uses its civilians as human shields the more the propaganda is going to work more people are going to think that Israel is doing this purposely to target civilians which of course is anything but the truth so if support wanes that also makes the conflict more complicated because Israel is more on its own okay but the main thing we need to talk about here of why this war is going to probably get worse before it gets better and why it's probably going to be, unfortunately, kind of long, is because what really this type of war is, is urban warfare. So most, when you think of war, you think of, right, you think of battlefields, like images you get probably from the Revolutionary War and the Civil War in America. But most modern war happens in urban areas, right? It happens where people are. The world in general is more populated, right? There's, that's the way war works nowadays. I'm going to read you some quotes about how that urban warfare could play out. A potential ground assault into Gaza would be no different. We'll discuss some other past conflicts. It would entail horrendously difficult tactical conditions, including room-to-room combat and tunnel warfare that would lead to massive casualties. It would require fighting on the ground, in the air, and at sea. Fighting that must be done in a carefully synchronized fashion. Combat will be slow and grinding. And the resulting devastation will almost certainly test international support for Israel's invasion. Israeli war planners are almost certainly considering these operational and strategic issues as they decide whether to invade and, if they go forward, how best to proceed. There's been a lot of research on urban warfare and how it plays out. I'm going to skip some of this article. It's a little more technical. It says, urban warfare is supremely demanding. Specialists such as combat engineers, snipers, medics, heavy weapons teams, and drone operators are valuable and hence heavily targeted. Armored vehicles, including armored bulldozers, are critical and have played a key role in recent battles, such as those in Ramadi in Mosul in Iraq. Armor has also been critical in Bakhmut in Mariupol. Sorry, I don't pronounce any of these things, and I looked up some of them, and some of them I just didn't look up. Armored vehicles are highly vulnerable, however, unless accompanied by infantry to deal with anti-tank weapons, mines, and improvised explosive devices. Support from tanks is vital in turn for protecting infantry on the ground. Artillery, mortars, and rockets are needed to strike enemy reinforcements and hit targets farther away. Modern militaries build a kill web of observers, sensors, and communications to feed targets to these longer-range weapons. 
commanders try to achieve a combined arms effect whereby enemies expose themselves to one threat, a drone or artillery strike from overhead, for example, as they seek to avoid another, such as a tank or, infant or infantry squad at street level, but this is far easier said than done. It goes on a really, really long rant about all the, not really rant, it's extremely interesting, but about all these different, you know, like, methods of how you fight in, literally, in cities where people are living, in buildings where people are living. Like, it is that urbanized. Another thing it also talks about is, in Gaza, key initial IDF objective was to separate Hamas fighters from civilians, right? Obviously, they were trying to figure out who is actually civilians and who's actually Hamas so they can avoid, you know, putting citizens in harm's way, putting civilians in harm's way. That also is incredibly technical. They have to figure out a way to evacuate civilians, which is also a problem because Hamas is blocking those routes. So all these things, fighting literally down hallways, fighting room to room, going to each individual block by block, door by door, and eliminating targets, that, especially, they're on Hamas's home ground, right? They're in their backyard. That also complicates things a lot. Hamas is prepared for this, right? All these things make this likely that it's going to last much longer. It's much more difficult than other types of warfare, and this is the way most modern warfare works today. Another quote from this article that's great quote, what started as a horrific attack on Israeli civilians exploiting shock and surprise is now likely to congeal into a grinding, slow, contentious, and costly battle in the air on lands, on the sea, and in cyberspace. In Gaza's complex, cluttered, heavily populated, and densely urbanized environment, it will be extraordinarily difficult to make sense of what is happening, even for those on the ground. Obviously, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. And another quote, understanding the tactical difficulty of urban warfare adds context that Israel can use to evaluate the wisdom or otherwise of any full-scale ground assault in Gaza. Right, obviously, IDF has to consider all these things, all the implications of what will happen when they attack, the the fact that it is going to be so technical and so grueling and difficult and long. All these things are going to play a part. Right, trying to avoid civilian casualties. No matter what happens in this case, it is it's not going to be pretty. Unfortunately, obviously, God can do anything, and that's the narrative we've been hearing, rightly so. Especially, I'm in a Jewish school right now. So that's what I'm hearing. Of course, we have to consider that, but we also need to talk about naturally the way things play out, you know, in the natural world. Okay. A little bit of history about modern, um, you know, about like urban warfare that I think is interesting. That has more perspective. So we have the detail, we have detailed accounts of their conduct by the Romans and Greeks, including Alexander the Great. Their main a dominant and decisive military option through the Middle Ages. This is about talking about urban warfare. During siege warfare, fighting mainly occurred at the fortifications surrounding cities. Once the fortifications of a city were breached by the attackers, the city either capitulated or was brutally sacked. The invention of gunpowder-based weapons and advancements in artillery eventually brought an end to the era of siege warfare. That's where you would siege a city, right? Even after the era in which sieges dominated, for the latter part of the 17th century, the professional armies of European... Of European kings ascribed to norms of decisive battle in the open. So that was the period where there was, you know, that's what you picture when you think of a war. You think of fighting on a battlefield. Similarly, with the rise of the Levy en masse, I don't know what that is, that followed, armies did not fight in urban areas, even when capturing a city was a primary operational objective. 
except when they were repressing domestic uprisings. With surprisingly few exceptions, urban warfare is a modern phenomenon. So almost never in the past was urban warfare the most common way of literally fighting in the city with the people. Now, it's become much more common. It was not until World War II that Western military formations experienced heavy and frequent fighting in cities. Even then, a majority of urban fighting was a part of a much wider campaigns fought in rural, rural areas. So if there was conflict in cities, it was kind of a reflection of a larger war that wasn't happening in the city, right? Even off the often referenced Battle of Stalingrad, so most of Wehrmacht's army group South B, whatever, not really relevant, and major proportions of Jenner Friedrich Paulus's 6th Army fighting in the countryside around the city, where they were later surrounded by numerically superior Soviet armies. So this really, really was not a common way. And now this is the way that people fight wars generally, is it's in these cities. It's thickly packed buildings, it's mines, it's tunnels, Hamas blending in the civilians. It's slow, it's tactically difficult. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is probably not going to be easy or fast, right? Of course, we pray the world to end soon. We know that God can do anything. We also have to acknowledge the facts that influence, you know, our decisions. Okay, now some questions from Gavi, my sister. She asked why there's a war. We already discussed that. Okay, she said, what do you think about people from seminary running home because of the war? This is more of a question specific to people who are, you know, living here, people in my circles. I'm in a seminary here. And it's this big discussion of people who are leaving, people who are staying in Jerusalem mostly, or Beit Shemesh, safe areas. So, a few things. Number one, obviously there's the Jewish commandment. I'm kind of talking mostly to like my friends here, but I also need to you know acknowledge the fact that some people don't who could, who could find this don't know what Kivudava aim is. So it's a Jewish law basically that you have to honor your parents. So parents who are telling their kids they would like them to come home, the, the children, which means according to Jewish law, have to respect that, okay? So if your parents are telling you to go home, no judgment, that is what you should do. There are some people who are going home for other reasons. I think every person has to know for themselves. I'm not judging anyone who goes home because some people aren't built for this and some people have extremely, extremely high anxiety because of this, and they made the decision that for their best interest, they go home. It's in their best interest they go home, right? I'm not judging that. I also think that a lot of people feel the extra pride to stay right now. I feel extremely proud to be here right now. I want to be here right now, and I can't imagine leaving. It depends on the person. I think judgment here is the biggest problem because every single person has unique circumstances, and saying that it is wrong to stay or it is wrong to leave is just a false dichotomy because it really depends on the person. Happens to be Yerushalayim is very safe right now. That doesn't mean people aren't anxious, right? Obviously, this is an incredibly unprecedented situation. It's going to call for incredibly difficult decisions. Obviously, there's a lot of rabbis saying Israel is the safest place to be right now. I happen to find Israel very, very safe. Also, I mean, they say it in a spiritual sense as well which I'm not really going to get into, but I think it really depends on the person, and I think that's really what the narrative we've all been hearing, but it's kind of funny because that isn't so relevant to the Dorinder conversation, but it's incredibly relevant to all of us who are here right now in, you know, Jewish institutions here. Okay, if God, here's another question from Gavi. If Gaza is seem to be weak, how have they done so much damage? So obviously, Iran is the answer. Iran funds them, Iran trains them, it is a much larger, larger force behind this, right? Also, 
Hamas met with Iran before this. They planned this since at least August, probably more, so they had a lot of time to perfect this. They, I think, are idiots and continue to be idiots, but they have very powerful people behind them. So, since at least August, people are saying this could have been planned for a couple of years now, but, you know, the actual on-the-ground meetings, like, actual details have been planned since at least August. The meetings actually happened in Beirut, which is the capital of Lebanon, right? Obviously, Hezbollah operates out of Lebanon. Also, there's other countries that are giving aid to Gaza, and they think that aid is being used for humanitarian reasons, but here's the thing about aid, okay? Here's the thing about Joe Biden giving money to Iran, to countries giving money, lifting sanctions on Iran, um, you know, to Obama's Iran nuclear deal, to, which I, I don't really explain, like, the timeline of that, but that was during the Obama administration, to countries sending humanitarian aid to Palestine, to Gaza, meaning Hezbollah, not Hezbollah, Hamas will use that money for terrorism. So even if they have limited resources, they have a lot of access to foreign resources because they keep getting sent it. And here's the thing, money can be replaced, meaning let's say Iran had X amount of money, and then we sent Iran aid money, you know, and said, use it for humanitarian reasons, use it for your civilians. So, we're, and they say, we say we're monitoring that bank, we're monitoring where the money is going, we're monitoring that money, if you use it for anything that is terrorist related, we're going to stop the flow of the money. Okay, that sounds great. Here's the problem. Iran's going to say, perfect, so we have this amount of money, we set aside this much for terrorism. Now that you gave us more, well, yeah, we're going to use the money you gave us for humanitarian stuff because you're monitoring it, or if you're not monitoring it, then obviously not but we're going to use it for what you want us to use it for but then we have more money that we can allocate from our funding for terrorism if someone has five dollars and you tell you give your child five dollars and you say you cannot use this to buy ice cream i'm watching you the child has five dollars in their bank in their piggy bank already now they have ten dollars so before they're like oh my gosh i really 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 need to buy something that i need for myself i need to buy i don't know a notebook and i didn't have money for the ice cream before because I only had $5. Now you gave me $5 and you said, don't use it for the ice cream. Perfect. I'm going to use that money to buy my notebook. And then I have the extra five sitting in my piggy bank to, to use to buy ice cream. Same thing with, obviously, it's a very, very small scale example. But same thing with Iran. Now Iran is able to allocate more money to fund people like Hamas. So that is how Gaza is, has been able to do so much damage. They planned this out for a long time. There's a lot of failures on the part of the Israeli military and different Israeli security groups. Very high up people. Obviously, the soldiers on the ground are all heroes doing their best. But that's how that this has happened. That's really, that's how you can answer that question. Will other countries get involved, Gavi asks. We answered that already. Gavi also asks, do you think this will be World War III? Okay. This is always a discussion. Anytime there's a regional conflict... People always ask if it's going to turn into a worldwide conflict, turn into World War III. The biggest question I asked when I thought of that question was, are Iran and Russia in cahoots? We know Russia attacked Ukraine. Iran's essentially waging a proxy war in Israel. These countries are engaged in a lot of conflicts around the world, and a lot of conflicts in the world can be traced back to countries like Russia and Iran, either directly, you know, attacking countries or through proxies, you know, Iran using Hamas to attack Israel. Okay. So, if these countries are in cahoots, 
is that something that could cause a larger conflict? Possibly. I don't think it's likely because I don't, I'm not someone who jumps to, oh my gosh, World War Three anytime anything happens. Here's an article from Barron's, which like, very just like a really interesting article that acknowledges that it is being a little extreme, but, you know, just is speculating its own fears, I suppose. So, um, unfortunately, I had access to this article before, but now it's making me subscribe. So we're going to in real time find out if it's going to make me pay. Yeah, it's going to make me pay. So I can't read this article, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I can't read this article because I am not subscribed. And if I even put in my email, I will get emails from them all day. I don't think you guys understand, but every time I do research and I need to subscribe to a certain website, I don't stop getting emails from them. I get emails from so many annoying websites because I subscribe to see one article for an episode. So we're not going to do that. It's also money, so we're not going to do that. But there are people who speculate that, yeah. I'm just going to give my analysis now, okay? My analysis is that in order to examine what causes world wars, we need to examine the underlying causes and then the spark or the impetus for the war. So, for example, one of the key causes of World War I in principle and theory was militarism, was countries feeling the need to develop these super strong militaries and then nationalism and then value clashes right especially world war ii value clashes obviously and then there's like the spark the major impetus which was for World War one the king of the archduke franz ferdinand but really what sparked it was okay yeah that sparked it because that assassination was what really caused the war what really actually how can a world war start it starts because allies get involved because this country that was just attacked has allies in five different countries. Those five countries now come to defend. Then the countries of the, of the country that is being attacked, because the countries were defending their ally, then those countries attack all the countries that were the allies, right? It, it, alliances play a massive part in what starts wars, especially World War I. It was after Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, the allies of all these different countries started getting involved. It spreads and it spreads, and before you know it, you have this ally, that ally, etc. Different, you know, I'm thinking of the Lusitania, then cause the U.S. to get involved, and then, right, allies are, are incredibly important, so analyzing if Iran and Russia are, are allies, and what, to the extent, what extent will they come to, you know, engage with their allies, and engage in attacks, you know, if, when Israel launches this, this ground attack, if Iran decides to get involved, and employ all of its, you know, proxy terrorist organizations to get involved, will then, will, allies of Israel then get involved, will Russia get involved. It's all about other countries and what they decide to do. That's why a lot of times when these conflicts happen, people want the U.S. to stay out of it because they're afraid that if the U.S. gets involved, it's going to escalate and could cause a world war because, again, alliances play a massive part in this. So that's kind of my analysis based on my limited understanding of these things. So I think that it depends. I don't, I'm not someone who jumps to the World War Three narrative. I don't think there's going to be World War Three. My That's always my default. I think anything is possible, and I think it's a very scary time right now. But I also think that, again, we learn our... Unfortunately, we don't learn a lot of lessons from history. But in some sense, there are some things that we learn. And avoiding world war is something that is always possible. Obviously, God's in control, and that's really all I can say about that. Now, we have an anonymous question. Great question. That kind of is a very good point to end on before I get into final reflections and lessons. 
this is an anonymous question. I just don't understand people's view when they sit when they side with Palestinians. Like, how are they able to say this is all Israel's fault? We were the ones attacked by them. Obviously, that's a great question because really no one can fully answer that because at the end of the day, it's really just is pure hatred. But I want to kind of give a few things that can sort of make sense. Number one, this is kind of a cancer in modern society that causes a lot of problems, is postmodernism or overintellectualization, as I like to call it. Okay, as a society, Western society, things were going pretty well at some point, you know, maybe around the 90s. And then people really just were running out of problems. Of course, there were plenty of problems, but it wasn't enough. People wanted things to, you know, overanalyze. They wanted to, like, have these deep conversations, right? And basically, again, we got to this very, very healthy place. So people went too far. And they said, no, everything we think is actually wrong. We need to reanalyze. We need to, re- we need to rewind and do everything over again. Because, again, we'd accomplished so much, which was a good thing, that we then, again, felt like there, we needed, there needed to be something more. People were grasping for meaning. Right, I guess you could probably tie religion being on the decline to this. People are grasping for meaning somewhere. So they start to kind of look for meaning in places where there really isn't meaning. Meaning there, there isn't depth. Like, for example, saying love is something that can be defined, you know, pretty simply in, when it comes to practic- practicality. People then say, well, what is love really? What, how really can we define this concept? They start to really analyze things. When you overanalyze, you end up just being dumb. You end up just over-intellectualizing, making things more complicated and nuanced than they need to be. That's postmodernism. That's just basically a big scribbled mess because you tried to be too intellectual, okay? So the way that plays into this, I think, according to my opinion, is that people, there is clear good and evil here. Clear good and evil. Hamas is evil. The innocent civilians who were slaughtered in cold blood were good. It's a clear battle. People, that isn't good enough for people. That's not nuanced enough for these postmodernists, for these over-intellectualization, you know, obsessors. They need to make it more complicated. They need to put in their own nuance. They need to say, well, really, Israel is wrong for all these reasons. They need to make it more complicated because it's too simple for them. That's what over-intellectualization is. That's postmodernism. There's so many problems in society that you can tie to that. I feel like in every episode, I'm always talking about how that causes so many of our problems. It's like we got to a good place, we went full full circle, and we just kept going right back around back to where we started, okay? That's really a big thing that I always consider when I discuss these things is how people could be so ignorant. It really just is this desire to find something deeper than just good versus evil, to find more nuance where no nuance exists because no, there is no nuance in slaughtering civilians. The other thing is that these are ideologues, which I discussed before. They, their minds cannot be changed. They have decided they are pro-Palestine, and Hamas's atrocities cannot change their mind. Okay? Another thing is just anti-Semitism. Um, it's always been around, especially when Israel, which is something that I heard a rabbi say today, actually, which was just a good way of putting it, especially once Israel showed it could be strong in the Six-Day War when they were militarily strong and they were not just cowering in a corner because they have the ability, because they have a Jewish state now, we have, we're much more able, we have much more resources now, that made us seem, you know, I guess less innocent, even though we are really defending ourselves and showing strength, which is incredibly important to defend our country and defend our people. So anti-Semitism definitely became even more prominent, especially when, it, when you tie that into Zionism in Israel after that. 
right? But obviously, again, you can't really rationalize that. We can't really understand why they hate us. That you could talk about, you know, that they think the Jews control everything. You talk about propaganda. You can also really just say that that really is just the way it has always been. Unfortunately, I don't have really a better answer than that. Propaganda is a big thing, which I discussed before. Hamas uses their civilians as human targets, which I discussed in detail, obviously, earlier. And then when Israel, unfortunately, after much effort to avoid this, if um, civilians die, then they use it as propaganda against Israel. So people then think Israel is just doing the same thing that Hamas is doing. Um, so that's another thing that's big. There's a lot of propaganda that's saying that what Hamas is doing isn't so bad. That I mean, this is like a very dark place to be on Twitter, but um, people saying that it's all lies and it's just a psyop, just like every other war. People are very also scarred from the... There's a lot of propaganda surrounding the Ukraine-Russia war. I think what Russia did was evil and wrong, but there was a lot of propaganda, unfortunately. And what that does is undermine the actual messages you want to bring across because you're making people think that the whole thing is a lie when really... The propaganda is, is not ever, you know, it, that doesn't mean that the conflict isn't bad, you know. So if one person one time lies about one thing Hamas did, doesn't make Hamas any better because Hamas does atro- commits terrible atrocities constantly and they commit terrible atrocities here. But the propaganda influences the way people think. Another thing is there's this common narrative in the West that the white person is the oppressor and the black person or the dark person, the brown person, is the oppressed. So people who live in the West are used to that narrative and they apply it to Israel too. They think that racism exists everywhere. They think that racism has always existed, has always been white people against black people, and black people are always going to be oppressed. Racism everywhere. So they just assume without looking at the facts, ignorantly assume, ideologically, based on the fact that they're ideologues, assume that because Israelis, that meaning they're not all white, but like in general, um, like, they're, you know, more European, more privileged, quote-unquote, than the Arabs who are not white. Um, they assume that white is bad, black is good. They simplify it because that's the way they've been brainwashed and that's the way that they think today. A lot of Western people, you know, Black Lives Matter, that was the same narrative. Which, by the way, Black Lives Matter, in case you didn't realize before, Black Lives Matter is anti-Semitic, is communist, is terrorist supporting so in case you're just wanted that fact okay tied into this whole thing is a couple points is everyone's calling what Hamas did war crimes and obviously they were war crimes but I think what you kind of say is there can be a totally legitimate war in which war crimes are committed right there can be a totally good army invading a place that needs to be recaptured from enemies and war crimes can be committed, right? I could give you examples. Um, for example, um, if you examine the way that Russian or Soviet soldiers treated German women when they were re, you know, when they were invading Germany at the end of World War II, okay? Those were war crimes. That doesn't mean that Germany should not have been invaded at all, and that we shouldn't have, you know, ended this war. Right? There are bad things that happen in wars that are not... Obviously, we, don't, we want to avoid war, but obviously sometimes wars are necessary. There are bad things that's, that can happen in necessary wars. So I feel like when you say war crimes, it kind of makes you kind of think that maybe there was something legitimate about this. And then Hamas just kind of like did bad things in the process. When really the whole thing is illegitimate and just 
a massive terror attack that then Israel had to declare war on Hamas as a response to because because they were slaughtering their civilians. So I think just like tied into that is when we call it war crimes, we're kind of playing into this kind of not propaganda, but like playing into the narrative that can make more people kind of consider this as a both sides thing where it could also be Israel's fault. Also, at the end of the day, we have to know who our enemies are. We have to know that these people who support Palestine and think it's Israel's fault, they are our enemies. Some of them are, are just dumb. Some of them hate us, and we have to understand that. And that brings me into my reflections or final lessons that I want to say. Okay? First thing is, history matters, right? We see the parallels between this and the Yom Kippur War. We see how, if you examine the history of the state of Israel, Israel has tried time and time again to make peace and to avoid conflict, but it's just been attacked, and no matter how much they capitulate, are attacked and attacked and attacked. We have to understand that, because understanding that helps us understand what's going on right now. We have to know who our enemies are, like I said. These people are enemies, and we cannot be naive to that. Evil exists. These people are evil, and calling them anything other than that is naive, right? Is not understanding that bad things happen. We've been very sheltered. We live very sheltered lives, many of us, and have not really fully understood the extent to which evil and anti-Semitism exists in this world, Jews are really not safe anywhere. The safest place they really are, ironically, is Israel right now. We look at what's going on all over the world. All these pro-Hamas protests, which I just referenced in that anonymous question. Right? You're really not safe anywhere. And you can't be naive to that fact. You have to know these people, some of these people, many of these people are your enemies. And knowing that is extremely, extremely important right now. I think Jews everywhere have started to wake up to that fact that a lot of these people who we, especially leftist Jews, these people that we thought were our friends are not our friends. These people who we've been living side by side with as neighbors have now started marching on the street, like celebrating our, the sla- our slaughter. We have to know that. That's, I think, the biggest reflection I can give. I'm going to end the same way Ben Shapiro started his first episode about the this whole conflict after the holiday was over he said i'm a jew he's proud to be a jew i'm proud to be a jew i think that is the most important lesson we can take from this is that there are always going to be people who want to destroy us we see it now more than any time since the holocaust and we see it in western countries more than ever and it's terrifying but it's also empowering we have each other right and that is the most important thing we can have right now is unity and understanding that there are people who want to kill us, but that we are strong and we will survive this, just like we've survived every single other enemy who has tried to destroy us. And that's how I want to end. So I was considering, for those of you who are new, I always recently have been trying to give recommendations for like things that you know you can read or things like not related to the topic, just in general. You can read podcasts I like, articles that I thought were interesting, books. I was deciding it was appropriate to do at the end of this episode. I think it is because I think, obviously, we can't be focusing on this 24-7. It's not good for us, especially those of us who are in Israel. We literally feel it every single second. It's totally fine and normal to find outlets to, you know, like, find other things to, you know, fill your time with that are meaningful. I think meaningful distractions is a good thing. So I'm going to recommend things that are kind of related, actually. Um, 
The first one I'm going to recommend is this book again. For those of you who don't know, I really only read old books. Um, I love them. I love classics. I think classic literature and classic, you know, media is so meaningful and so much more, you know, full of values that really gives us, again, meaningful distractions where we're actually improving our lives and not just turning our brains off. So The Old Man and the Sea is a fantastic Hemingway novella. It's about this man who hasn't, who's been fishing, he hasn't caught fish in a bunch of days. Everyone thinks in the town thinks that he's cursed, that he has some kind of bad luck on him. He finally goes out and he finally catches this massive fish and the story is about him trying to get this massive, massive fish back to shore. And it sounds boring, but Hemingway's writing is brilliant. He's, he is brilliant. Um, and it's, I think I thought it was relevant because it talks a lot about perseverance, about you know, standing up in the, against, you know, people who doubt you and standing up against all odds and persevering. And it's a good message to have right now, I think. So I wanted to recommend that. Also, I think it's very hard to find, we're seeing everyone's true colors. That's one of the biggest lessons I guess we've learned is that we can see people's true colors now. We can really see who our enemies are. They're out in the open, you know. So, we're also seeing those who really support us when, when it counts. We're seeing the conservatives who, unfortunately, I've seen conservatives who have totally, you know, betrayed me. They, I, feel, I feel like they've betrayed me. They've, you know, they've condemned Israel and they've done all these things and, you know, said free Palestine. Not really so many mainstream, but some. And unfortunately, I've had to, you know, distance myself from a lot of these people when decided I'm not supporting them in their content anymore. So finding, you know these people who will support us and will support Jews in Israel when it counts is really important. Megan Kelly is one of those people. Megan Kelly is fantastic. I'm sure a lot of you probably heard of her. She was on you know, cable news and now she has her own podcast. She's brilliant. She's done a lot of great episodes just about any topic really. So I think if you want to find someone who you know, she really does support you and your values and stands up for you when it counts. She's a great one. Um, yeah, so I think she's someone we should be supporting. So she hasn't been doing the both sides thing. She's been calling Kamas what they are, which is terrorist monsters. That's another thing. Third thing I want to recommend is... Okay, this one's very nerdy, but I'm very into old-time. Not as much recently, but I used to be, and I think it's great. Is old-time radio, which is basically classic... Before there was TV, classic radio shows, which was the entertainment of people, you know, before there was TV, obviously... And there's, like, any genre you want. There's mystery, there's um, there's comedy, there's horror, there's any, like, sitcom style, any, I guess, genre. And I think what's so important is that so much content today just doesn't share our values and gives values that are antithetical to Judaism, antithetical to conservatism. And finding things that are old, oftentimes they are... And they have more, you know, moral value. They share more of, they, you know, our beliefs. And listening to things like that is just a good way to distract yourself from everything, but also to really be getting, feeling you're getting something meaningful out of it. So that's a big thing. I'm very into old stuff, very into old music, you know, classical music, very into old books, very into old radio. I think it just, it's so meaningful and it allows you to kind of, you know, we listen to things that are, you know, good content, good value, but they share your values. So 
now I want to do one thing. And I'm going to allow you to turn off if you want to end here. And you can also listen if you don't. There's this video of a professor, like I mentioned earlier, this Columbia professor. I mentioned his speech. I want to play that speech. So if you don't want to sit through a 10-minute speech, I think you should. I think it's worth it. I just didn't want to stick it right in the middle so it was annoying people had to skip. Um, if they just, like, don't care to listen. It's like, it's long. I'm going to play all 10 minutes. That's how I'm going to end. I'm going to play my outro music. And then um, I'm going to... I'm going to play that, and you can listen. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to end with that. I think that really just gives over a lot of the messages that we need to be hearing right now that teach us, you know, who our enemies are and discusses all these things I've been talking about. So thank you for listening. I'm sorry this was so long. I, my goal was to keep it under an hour. Obviously, I did not succeed in that. But I hope you, if you're here now, you listen to the whole thing. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. Um... Obviously, I think this should be sent out because I think a lot of people don't like following the news. They don't like having to keep up with all of this. They're overwhelmed by it. And what I really want to try to do is, you know, to boil it down. And obviously, two hours isn't really boiled down. But to kind of, in a sense, give some of these perspectives that aren't unique to me. Well, they're things that no one wants to have to read articles to kind of, you know, gain that perspective and maybe... You haven't been following any of this and just, you know, want the basics. So, yeah, send it out to anyone you think would benefit from this. And, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Again, I really, really, really appreciate it. And, yeah, bye. Thanks for turning right. Take out your phones because I want this message to get to every parent who sent their kids to Columbia University and trusted their kids and their children's safety with us. I want this message to get to every parent in America who sends their kids to NYU, to Harvard, to Stanford, to Berkeley. And I want you to know one thing, we cannot protect your child. And I'm not saying this as a professor. I should introduce myself. My name is Shai Davidai. I am a professor at Columbia Business School. I am Israeli. But before all of that, I am a dad. I have two beautiful children. And I'm talking to you, I'm speaking to you as a dad. And I want you to know, we cannot protect your children from pro-terror student organizations because the president of Columbia University will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations because the president of Harvard University, because the president of Stanford, because the president of Berkeley, they will not speak out against pro-terror student organizations. Last Saturday, 14 U.S. citizens were kidnapped into Gaza with 200 other Israeli, French, German, and other nationalities. 14 citizens of the U.S. are right now kidnapped in Gaza. And yet the president of the university 
is allowing, is giving her support to pro-terror student organizations. I have an amazing seven-year-old son. Every night before I tuck him to sleep, we read a chapter of Harry Potter. And yet, to the students, to the pro-terror student organizations at Columbia, my seven-year-old son is a legitimate target of resistance just because he's Israeli. I have a two-year-old daughter, a feisty two-year-old daughter. She has two songs that are her favorite, Baby Shark and Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. And yet, to the pro-terror student organizations on campus here and at Harvard and at NYU and at Stanford and at Berkeley and at Northwestern, my two-year-old daughter is a legitimate target of resistance. That is what they are selling. You are allowed to murder and kidnap my two-year-old daughter in the name of resistance. And none of the presidents of universities all around the country are willing to take a stand. This is what cowards do. And I'll name it now. President Minouche Shafiq of Columbia University. You are a coward. Because if President Biden can come up and say, no, this is unacceptable, this is inhumane. And if Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, is able to say, this is not okay, then where are you, President Shafiq of Columbia University? We are waiting for you to eradicate all pro-terror student organizations from campus. Last week, last week, we had thousands of students chanting pro-terror songs that are sung right now in Iraq, in Libya, in Yemen, in Afghanistan. They were singing this not in Gaza, not in Afghanistan, here in New York City. And this is the school that you want to send your children to. They were celebrating the rape of teenage girls in a music festival in the name of resistance. They were celebrating this. And the president of the university is allowing these pro-terror student organizations to march on our campuses. They brought a building here of the Jewish, the Center for Jewish Life had to go on lockdown. Not in Gaza, not in Tel Aviv, here in New York City because of this quiet, this cowardice of the presidents of NYU, of Columbia, of Harvard. And I'm telling every parent in the United States, it does not matter if you're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or an atheist like myself. Rape is never okay. Right. Not as an act of resistance, not as an act of revenge. Rape is never okay. And if I, if my amazing two-year-old daughter was now 18 years old, 
I would never, never send her to Columbia. Not because it's not a great institution, it's an amazing institution, but because I know that she will not be protected there. Because the president of the university allows pro-terrors to march on campus. We would never allow, never allow the KKK to march on our campus. We would never allow a pro-ISIS demonstration on our campus. Can you imagine in the city that had to endure 9-11, the worst attack on American soil? Can you imagine that here we have pro-terror student organizations? So what I want you to do now is I want you to go on social media. I want you to put this video online. I want this to get to every, to every parent every concerned mom, every concerned dad in around the United States. And I want you all tomorrow morning to call your kids college, your kids university, and ask them one simple question. Will you protect my child from pro-terror student organizations? And if your kid is not yet in college, but you are a concerned parent or a concerned grandparent. I want you to call your senator, your representative in Congress, your governor, your mayor, and I want you to ask them, are the colleges in my city, in my state, who are funded by taxpayers' money, are they harboring pro-terror student organizations, because kidnapping nine-month-old babies is never okay. Rape is never okay. Murdering 89-year-old grandmothers who have Alzheimer and do not know what is going on, shooting them in the head, sorry, executing them, is never, never, never okay. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional. I'm only emotional because I am a parent. People have asked me in the past few days, are you not afraid to speak up? You're putting your job on the line. You got it all wrong. I am not afraid to speak up. I am speaking up because I'm afraid. I am speaking up because I walked onto my own campus the place that's supposed to, that is employing me is supposed to keep me safe. And I was shivering. I am 40 years old, and I was shivering to come to my own employment. Imagine not being able to go to your work because your boss does not value your life, because your boss supports pro-terror organizations. Thank you very much.